This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Happy Tuesday morning to you folks. Hope you uh, had a wonderful three-day weekend. If you, uh, you know, many aren't fortunate enough to take the time to have uh, have a little break here and there, but uh, hope it went well for you either way. You mean they had to labor on Labor Day? Some people had to labor. That's horrible. I know. It's just, it doesn't seem like it's a holiday unless everybody's doing it. You know? I've had a, we weeded. We, we weeded our garden. And it's, ama- it's amazing. It doesn't matter how much exercise you do. When you do decide to weed, you still end up pulling muscles you didn't know you had. Oh, sure. Apparently, we've been given weeding muscles. Yeah. And I done pulled every one of them. So you just have not been working them very well then. No. I, my wife's like, yeah, that's funny. I didn't, I didn't bother me. And I'm like, well, you've you've been working out your weeding muscles. Well, and you've you've got a few young weeds in your home that she's pulling around all the time. All the time. Ah. So we weeded and we played tennis. And they keep growing, too. I know. They grow like weeds. <laughs> it's the darndest thing. Hey, happy uh, Be Late for Something Day. I'm late. I'm late. It's a very important date. No time to say hello. Goodbye. I'm late. I'm late. I'm late. There's that's the rabbit. That was the part I played in Alice in the Wonderland. Are you Alice serious? In Wonderland. Yeah. Wow. I was the rabbit, and I sang a solo. Really? That was my debut. That was actually the one and only time I've ever I've ever had to sing a song. But then in a play, there was some controversy surrounding that because you showed up late for the performance. Yeah. But then I'm, you know, I had a great. It was song. perfect. Yeah, you were in character. It was a great. That was a really a breakout moment for me. I think I was probably in fifth or sixth, probably sixth grade, and uh, I was the rabbit. And right then I realized, man, I shouldn't sing. <laughs> I shouldn't sing on on Broadway. I shouldn't sing on a stage in Salt Lake City, Utah. Well, luckily for you, that song isn't really meant to be sung, you know, on key or very well. What, what do you because, mean? Because, well, you're running. Yeah, but and, why? What? Well, in the no, movie. But, uh, no, but I did. I sang it great. I nailed it. So you like opera style or? A little vibrato. little okay. sixth grade vibrato. Nothing better than when a sixth grader pulls out the vibrato. Oh, I love listening to my five-year-old hit those, vibra- you know, do vibrato <laughs> and try to figure out how music works. It's cute. <laughs> it's cute. It's why we have those cute little kids. Hey, as uh, September 5th is be late for something day, there are some people who are just exceptional at putting things off and showing up late. And while normally we consider such behavior to be rude today, it's totally acceptable. You can be late. Really? You just just be you. It was established by the Procrastinators Club of America. So if I go to the movies after the show and then come home, yeah, I can I'm okay. Just tell your wife, "Sorry, I'm late." I have you heard of the Procrastinators Club of America? Yeah, I'm with them now. I'm not only a member, I'm the president. <laughs> I carry their card. Yeah, so today you can get away with anything. Now, I don't know that your boss will <laughs> let you, but I'm saying try it. And then mm-hmm. just, you know, say what? You want are you trying to kill me? I mean, sometimes being on time is detrimental to your health, your well-being. Sometimes you just need to be late. I I think it's tough to be late in a radio job though. Yeah. Well, yeah. We don't really have that privilege. Yeah. 
I do because I if I'm late, I just call you guys and you guys cover it for me. Yeah. Sorry about that. Anyway, we've got a lot to talk about today. Irma, we have another uh, uh, category, I don't know, four, category five storm coming in through um, uh, the Caribbean right now. Didn't so, you say you knew somebody who named their child Irma? Irma. Uh, maybe that was a joke. I don't hmm. remember. Uh, maybe wanted to name their kid <laughs> Irma. Yeah, what if you did name your kid Irma or Harvey? Those are two names. Katrina. I know a Katrina or two. Do hospital administrators have veto power in this regard? Yeah. They might uh, want to... You can't name your kid Harvey. Sorry. Uh, you may not want to go with Irma. It is on our storm naming list this year. <laughs> That's, that is what you'd want to check is check with the weather service uh, to make sure that your child's name won't immediately be destroyed by, you know, a storm. So we'd call it a storm warning. But then every time your kid walks in, it's like a storm warning. Oh, here comes Irma. Hold on to your hat, folks. Look at the mess he's leaving behind. <laughs> I don't think we'd name an Irma he. Yeah, that's a good point. Anyway, uh, that could be creating potential problems for Florida and actually the Caribbean as well. So watch out for that. lot to cover. So much to get into today. Uh, we will also be replaying an interview we did with Jillian Jordan about the evolution of moral outrage. That's like like what what makes you able to just sit there and be mad and have a moral pushback? Come on. There's apparently an evolution to it. It started somewhere. Right, Terry? <laughs> I don't know where it started. You don't know where it started? I think we, I think there's a, I think we just have a better outlet to share it now. Yeah, isn't that great? I think before you could be mad but you're in your own house, you maybe would call a friend. Yeah. Now we can just blast away on social media. And, and you have the, the right and you think it matters. I mean, everyone has the right to free speech, but everyone is making a bigger deal about it today, it seems like. Yeah. Did you ever see that Saturday Night Live sketch where it was a, a talk show where all of these trolls, online trolls, were confronted <laughs> by the people that they were trolling? No, but that would be great. It was, it was pretty clever. That would be great. ESPN had a feature like that. They put their female reporters in front of someone who had written something online about them. Interesting. They how had did, them speak face to face. How did that go? It was really awkward to watch. Awkward for the female, awkward for the male. Both. Because the, the female was expressing her, you know, feelings of why are you doing this to me? I'm simply saying that this athlete as this, you know, yeah, which just, who cares? It's just, yeah. And the person's over here like, you threatened me. You called me names. You, you know, not just like you're a bad writer, but you're a person who should die. Wow. Like, why Why did we go to there? And then the person was like, well, it was, I didn't really mean it, but uh, did, did you know, this, that kind of thing. You're like, well, then why are you doing it? And like, well, because they feel emboldened. Yeah. They feel they're mad because they feel like this person's attacking their team. Yeah. But they're by them. They're not facing the person. So it's easier just to start lobbing bombs instead of actually having a conversation. You know, the person I'd like to confront is uh, in the comment section. There's always that person that says, I make $50 an hour working from home. Oh, yeah. They toss in the ad. (laughs) Sell real estate with me. They've got to go down. Those people. And then they just, yeah, they just pop up everywhere. (laughs) I don't understand it. It's like stay on topic. They're popping up left and right. 
Okay. Well, um, by the way, so that's I, I didn't know ESPN did that. That seems pretty brutal. I don't know if it was ESPN. Maybe it was another group, but there was several ESPN reporters in the yeah. videos I've seen. And they're just looking at it like, why do you think I should die? Because this guy shouldn't be a starting pitcher. Well, you know, it's just—it's ridiculous when you actually when you lay out the facts, and the guy's like, "Oh, well." When you put it that way, it was a Tuesday night. It was late, you know. <laughs> I think yeah, pushing for death is—it is probably you know a step too far. Yeah. I mean, you, you unless can... of course it's like a Super Bowl or something. <clears throat> Kathy Griffin, <clears throat> excuse me. The, did you hear his cough? Yeah. It sounded like he said Kathy Griffin. He verbalized his cough. Yes. Was it a verbalization of a sort cough, of. or was it just a cough that really sounded like Kathy Griffin? Could have been. I'm not saying that she's somebody that takes to social media threatening to kill people, <clears throat> President Trump. Um, I'm just saying maybe my that? cough sounds like right. I'm she, saying Kathy Griffin. And she apologized, and now she's unapologized. Yeah. Yeah, that, let's, let's just make a rule for us. We will never hold someone's head... <laughs> up to a picture or a, or a video or anything like that. We'll just never... Unless it's Halloween. That's Even what my Halloween? grandma... My grandma always told me that. Is that what grandma said? Yeah. Don't ever pretend to cut off someone's head and then hold it up, especially if it's a political figure. Yeah. Oh. Well, Almost way, verbatim. Did, well. did grandma have anything for your cough where you're, you're, you talk in your cough? Because you probably need to work on that. Sorry. It just keeps sneaking out. <laughs> oh. oh, boy. Has she still got that cough? She has a whole chapter in her book about this. It's just just says cough, cough, <clears throat> cough, cough, cough. <laughs> Sounds like a really long chapter. Okay, we'll get to all that fun, folks, including um, you know help along with your cough today on this the uh, be late for something day. Terry, give us the headlines. What else should we be paying attention to? U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Nikki Haley has called on the United Nations Security Council to take the strongest measures possible against North Korea, which she says is, quote, begging for war after its sixth missile test. Enough is enough. War is something the United States uh, does not want. We don't want it now. Our country's patience is not unlimited. Haley said Monday in an emergency meeting in the council. The meeting came after North Korea publicly declared it had detonated a hydrogen bomb a day earlier, a move that saw Washington uh, threaten possible military action in, re- in response. Haley said the U.S. will also pay close attention to any countries doing business with North Korea and giving aid to their reckless and dangerous nuclear intentions. The U.S. plans to draft new resolutions on North Korea this week. Other council members, including Japan and France, called for harsher sanctions against North Korea, while Russia and China reiterated calls for a peaceful resolution to the crisis. Which is how this works. Thanks, Russia and China. Yeah. But it, it, it is a kind of an empty threat. We're not going to not do business with, say, I don't know, China. Yeah. It's kind of a big part of the economy. So that's, yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah. So, you know, tensions, bombs blowing up. And by the way, did you see that supposed hydrogen bomb? What it looked like? Well, yeah. I mean, it just looks like something Uncle Larry built in the oh, back yeah. I mean, garage. <laughs> we're not talking like the height of technology here, but they blew up a... And don't get me wrong, device. but it seems like if you just then like welded that or attached that to an ICBM missile, right? I don't think the missile would fly right. <laughs> I mean, aren't missiles like aerodynamic? On some level, allegedly. Okay. I mean, I'm not an engineer, but President Trump has decided to end the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, but will delay its dismantling for six months, according to reports. 
Uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions will make an announcement at 11 a.m. Eastern today. It's believed he will confirm that report. DACA is a Obama-era program. Grants work permits for young immigrants brought to America illegally as children and currently benefits roughly 800,000, as they're called, dreamers. Yeah. It seems like I thought he was going to not mess with that. That's what he said. But he's in a tough situation because, one, it's an Obama thing. Yeah. He doesn't tend to want to support any of those. And it's also there's six or seven states with uh, Republican attorney generals who are forcing him because they are saying we are going to – they they wanted to sue the Obama administration over this program when it started. Yeah. And now because Trump's in the the White House, they're going to follow through with the lawsuit. They have a judge in Texas who's – uh, anti-immigration usually, so he's fa- he'll f- he'll favor their uh, their side His of this. Version. So, in other words, they're going to force the government to either defend an Obama-era executive order in court, or they'll make them just decide to scrap it. Well, but they, it seems like they have to have another answer, then, right? Well, the answer is the six-month waiting Congress period to let Congress figure it out, because that that would be probably the better way. But does he not know that Congress <clears throat> can't figure anything out lately? He's probably aware. Okay. Paul Ryan on Friday urged Trump not to end the program outright because I believe this is something Congress has to fix. So we'll see where that goes. Well, I mean, let me just get this straight. Congress Congress has had years to get this fixed. Oh, right. Sure. Oh, okay. Just checking. But they don't want to fix it. Yeah. It's just a thing. Um, this goes along with our moral outrage story. Officials at a Utah hospital where a nurse was arrested after refusing to allow police to draw a patient's blood or apologizing that security officers didn't intervene and saying that they've implemented policy changes. So you have the video. It's why yeah. people have seen it. So you have the nurse standing there. Police from the city are in there, but there's also police from camp, the campus. Well, the university well, campus weird, police you have security. hospital security, and then you have university campus police, yeah. and then you have the administrators, right. and no one was really I, – but I, what do you do? Like, so well, the campus co- security can kick off Salt Lake PD? I don't think so. Yeah, that. I mean, what, that, then it's a tase off. Yeah, I just <laughs> <laughs> exactly tase it. I mean, at one point, the arresting officer said, "If anyone tries to stop me, you're going to jail too." And everybody went, "Whoa, hell, whoa, what are you whoa, talking about? What whoa. are we talking about?" You know, we have our own jail on campus. What's going on here? Well, what do you do? That that was crazy. There was a press conference yesterday. The uh, hospital uh, is going to limit access for police in the patient areas of the hospital. That's been, in, ah. that's been in place for six months, Interesting. which is part of why this, uh, this officer was not allowed into the burn unit yeah. to draw the blood that he wanted and cause the whole, uh, scuffle and, and, and situation mm. there. So the, uh, U- university of Utah police chief, Dale, uh, Brophy marked his first, public comments in the reaction of his officers in the hospital. He says none of the hospital officers have been disciplined, but we receive additional training. He based, I think they were just saying we're deferring because we're, they try to have this, uh, the university police try to have this relationship with the city police right. and by, you know, causing conflict that way. It's kind of a weird jurisdictional mm. Well, you don't want to cross the blue so. line. Well, yeah, the but, blue line. But apparently the nurse that was in blue she crossed the line. But I say this that is That was crazy th- video. This is a moral outrage situation because people see the video and if you started reading comments on anything it was just everyone's got an opinion, everyone's calling yeah. people at fault. And then all these other people said this is what happens when President Trump's in office. Oh yeah. Like, whoa whoa whoa. It's this a has Trump problem. Nothing to do with him. <laughs> what about Okay, no no, it was Obama. 
Obama did this. It's just and and they just the the argument starts spinning out, yeah. and it's just people feel like they can jump in, make a comment, feel like they they're vindicated. They got to get their voice out, and they there. can move on from there. So well, okay, well, so so just com- explain again. What did Hillary Clinton have to do with this? Nothing. Okay, she may have been in the hospital at some point for the cough. The cough. A, a hospital, not that one. Not that one. But, you know, it's a hospital, so we can it's interesting link it together. Boy, this was kind of one of those weird scenarios captured by video, and yet so many people really didn't do a very good job. No. It was a failure on many levels. Hmm. Just, Sometimes it sounds like our show. It's <laughs> kind of fun. And finally, I think it was because of the holiday weekend, people were looking for something to be angry about. Yeah. Uh, Nintendo updated the bio for uh, Mario of Mario Brothers. Okay, yeah. Fame. Yeah, Mario. Is um, he the one the red hat or the He was the red hat. Red Luigi hat. his brother. The, the green hat. Um do you do you, Don't pretend like you don't know. What, what, I just can never was, remember M or L. What was Mario's profession? Do you remember? He's a plumber. <sighs> no. They've updated his bio. Oh. It says uh, this is translated from Japanese. But Hold on, hold, hold, yeah, hold, yeah, yeah, hold. yeah, 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 yeah. Mario is Italian, I thought. Well, yeah, yeah, but but G- Nintendo. Nintendo is Japanese. Okay. Yeah. Boom. So it says, all around sporty, whether it's tennis or baseball, soccer or car racing, he, Mario, mm-hmm. does everything cool. This is translated yeah. from Japanese. It says, as a matter of fact, he also seems to have worked as a plumber a long time ago. Oh, a long time ago. Now. Is he unemployed? Those days are behind he's him. He's just moved on to other things. Now he's just doing everything cool. Apparently. Um, he's a painter. One Twitter user posted, look, it's simple. Mario is an Italian plumber who fights evil turtles and mushrooms ruled by a dog, turtle, dino, dragon who kidnapped a princess. It's mm-hmm. very simple. Don't mess with the story. Sounds he doesn't like have Jeff. time for the plumbing with the, when he's fighting evil. When did he fight evil? And yet, you know, you would think when, he, when he's going through all those pipes to get to the bad guys, that he could do some plumbing along the way. It kind of eliminates yeah. the whole pipes thing. That's kind of a, a big theme throughout the games. Right. You need... He's a plumber. But now they're saying he was a plumber like a long time ago. We missed his transition to a new career. But yeah, now he's fighting evil villains. Right. And, and racing cars. I never cars saw Bowser and... as evil. Really? Well, my kids love being Bowser on that on the, the video game. The whole kidnapping, trying to kill you with hot lava didn't seem evil to you? I thought we were having fun. Mm, interesting. Yeah, because my idea of, of fun is taking a nice hot swim in lava. Really? <laughs> Sarcasm, man. Oh, is that sarcasm? Hold on, i got to write that down. Sarcasm. He's using sarcasm There now. you go, yeah. Uh, okay. I did not, because I, I don't play the game enough. Sorry. Right. Hold it. Hmm. Wasn't Mario in Donkey Kong? Yeah. Yeah. Is it the same guy? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So where did Bowser come from? He was updated with the original Mario Brothers video game. Come on, get with the time. It's a spinoff from Donkey Kong. Some of us just went to school. Know your early 80s video games. But I don't think that was early 80s, was it? Oh, yeah. Well, Donkey Kong was. What are you you saying, mid-80s, late-80s? No, I'm talking about all of the late Mario Kart, all of those. Yeah, that's later. But yeah, but you start with the origin story of him saving the princess. Yeah, I don't remember any of that. Man. He said quite the career, though. Plumber, artist... Driver, butcher, candlestick maker. He fought ghosts at one point. Mm-hmm. And now he's a nurse at the University of Utah Hospital. There he is. Almost getting tased by a Almost cop. getting tased. Oh, well. Okay. Well, see, the things you learn on the show that you didn't even know you wanted to learn. Uh, up next, we're going to be talking about the evolution of moral outrage.
Interesting stuff. Straight ahead, this is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You, you know, we all know that one guy in the office who will do anything to be in the spotlight. Maybe it's that guy that calls everybody else out on their productivity. Or, you know, it could be when something goes on. You remember with the lion that was killed in Africa? Everybody was so outraged by it. There's, there's something that happens when people show moral outrage. You know, they get a little blurry sometimes. Why are they doing it? Are they doing it to promote their own issues? Are they doing it to look good? Are they doing it simply because they can't believe what's happening? Well, our next guest uh, joining us from Hartford, Connecticut, is Jillian Jordan. She's a Ph.D. candidate uh, in psychology at Yale University. And she recently wrote an article on Psychology Today, Evolution of Moral Outrage, I'll Punish Your Bad Behavior to Make Me Look Good, discusses the theory behind human morality and our motivations, uh, you know, in our drive for success. So we're so excited to have you. Jillian Jordan, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks so much. PhD candidate, you're almost there. You're almost there. <laughs> Hang on, Jillian. Sure. <laughs> good, to, good to have you here. So talk to us about, uh, first of all, how did you, how did you find this topic of, uh, and, and get into the topic of the evolution of moral outrage? Um, well, I think that it's a really pervasive part of society around us that I find really interesting. So, yeah, you gave a bunch of great anecdotes of this kind of moral outrage. And I think that, you know, we see a lot of moral progress being driven by people's outrage. So, you know, I think whatever your personal politics are, it seems like when people achieve achieve progress, for example, making the the Supreme Court making gay marriage legal or something, it's often pushed by a lot of people feeling really outraged about what they perceive to be wrongdoing. And right. um, so I think this is clearly a really important part of society, and it's a really important part of, like, sort of what makes humans special. Like, there's not a lot of evidence that other animals really care when um, people besides themselves have been harmed. And mm. so um, I, I find that to be really interesting, and what we do in my research group is we sort of think about from the perspective of evolution and rational self-interest, which are sort of thought to be these selfish processes, like how is it possible that people do things that appear to be altruistic at face value, like paying personal costs to be a whistleblower or a protester or um, sort of risk alienating other people when you criticize them in the fight for moral progress. So Mm. Um, that's sort of how we came to this topic. It's an interesting topic. I mean, the idea, too, just of being a whistleblower, right? I mean, you're putting yourself yeah, out on the line, but you just can't take it anymore. Is I mean, I guess to me there's a difference between moral outrage maybe at its at the inception of the event or the topic and then the ones that eventually just stay outraged for the next 20 years fighting a That's movement true, yeah. you know i mean yeah definitely so but some people invest a lot more <laughs> talk to me talk to us about what you're learning about about what uh what generates moral outrage i mean i if it's an evolutionary uh process then it must have been some benefit i would assume to to show moral outrage right. or or they it would never have happened yeah, definitely. So, I mean, 
Um, our research is sort of interested in one particular benefit uh, to moral outrage, which is the idea that if you condemn and punish misbehavior, you're sort of able to broadcast and advertise to observers that you yourself wouldn't engage in that immoral behavior. And mm. that sort of makes them more likely to trust you um, not not to sort of screw them over. And so yeah. they're willing to invest in relationships with you and they can kind of pay off in the long run, even if in the short run you um, sort of risk a lot of things uh, for doing the condemnation and punishment. It's interesting because it's almost, it seems like a very political move, right? So you're you're risking a little bit uh, but you right. also are supposedly, you know, engendering trust. Right, definitely. I mean, I think that um, that happens all the time, like in human social behavior. I mean, I think we're talking about one example of that with condemning and punishing moral wrongdoing. But I mean, that's also sort of how many evolutionary scientists think about why we do all sorts of nice acts. So, you know, you do a favor for your friend, you help them move, you... Um, help them with their schoolwork, and in the short term, it's sort of a drain on your time or resources or effort, but in the long run, they sort of are likely to help you, and this Mm. is the sort of same theory, but applied to um, condemning and punishing wrongdoing as opposed to helping others. Right, and and I guess, is it that that conscientious? Is that what you learned, is that we are kind of, we're consciously... uh, you know, doing this act today to get payment of benefit tomorrow versus... No, definitely I mean, not. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, I guess it's more yeah, gut. So feel. I don't think we make to, we mean to make any claims whatsoever about the extent to which this behavior is conscious um, because our research methods didn't really allow us to test that. Um, my intuition just from being a person in the world is like, I definitely don't think this is typically conscious. I think most of the time people are really genuinely outraged, um, their conscious experience is one of anger that something wrong has happened. Mm. But if you consider, like, why we would come to feel anger, then that's where I think our theory comes in. It sort of helps explain why individuals who have this reaction of anger might sort of gain some long-run social advantage. Yeah. So is it, uh, you studied it more, I guess, in corporate life. Is that how you went about uh, people Um, calling out? example that I just used to illustrate the idea in the article you read, but in terms of our actual research methods, we had a very abstract and sort of non-context specific method, which was we had people play these economic games online with strangers, which are basically, they make decisions about how to divide money. Mm. And so when we look at, you know, punishing misbehavior, what, what we have is a situation where one person gets some money, and they have the chance to share that money with somebody else who didn't start off with anything. And, you know, a lot of people share with some people don't. And then we ask a third person, if the person decided not to share, to selfishly keep all the money for themselves, are you willing to give up some of your own money to cause them to lose their money? Hmm. So our punishment decision is like, you know, giving up some of the money that you got in the experiment to make someone selfish lose the money they got in the experiment. (laughs) Um, And what we do is we just, like, have now a totally new person who wasn't at all involved in the interaction I just described decide how trustworthy they think the person is who may or may not have punished. Um, And our basic result is they're sort of more willing to invest money in them with the assumption that they'll be willing to return that money 
if the person punished, suggesting that they infer that people who punish are sort of fair-minded and trustworthy. Mm. Isn't that interesting? And um, yeah, definitely. And, and and what I guess in the end, it, it's a uh, it's kind of a natural process, and and we don't when we don't sense somebody did something fair, it 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 angers us in some degree to mm-hmm. even want to spend money to stop them. Exactly. Yeah. Which is, I mean, that's not our result. That's actually people have been using the sort of first game I described for. Um, a couple decades in this field and they consistently find that they find you know across cultures across contexts when people play this game they're willing to give up some of their own money to make selfish people lose their money which i think is really cool huh and by doing that i guess uh one of the things in the article um talks about uh it's it ends up signaling by by my act of um i guess payment to stop a a, a misdoer it ends up signaling to others that I guess I have a moral advantage, that I'm morally exactly, stronger. Yeah. Right. And so they, they assume, you know, you will be fair to them. You wouldn't refuse to share. And so it's worth investing in a personal relationship with you because you're likely to be morally good. It's interesting, too. And I guess, too, what it says on a social level is that it, I, it, would, it would benefit society as we are punitive and punishing of those that aren't moral. Yeah, definitely. So, so everybody's um, on board. Like, yeah, let's 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 put <laughs> down the the the, the misdoer. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that for the most part, it's a really good thing for society when um, you know misbehavior gets punished because, in the same way that you know the criminal justice system and legal punishment deters people from committing crime, I think. The fear of social repercussions deters people from being selfish. So, I mean, you can imagine a situation where someone gets gets asked to give, you know, a, a colleague a ride to the airport or something, and they don't really want to do it because it takes a bunch of their time. But they know, you know, if everyone knows they refuse to do it, people are going to judge them negatively. They're going to refer to them as selfish hmm. or condemn them, and like this is going to have reputational repercussions for them, and so. They're sort of deterred by that punishment, and they're like, okay, I'll, I'll agree to drive this person to the airport. So I think um, it definitely promotes good behavior in society if people know that if they behave badly, they will be punished. And yeah. being punished will be you know, costly to them. Um, that said, I think that like, you can get interesting cases where you get sort of an overreaction to um, a seemingly minor transgression. If every individual wants to sort of be on the record condemning or punishing that transgression for the purpose of communicating to their friends and acquaintances that they are morally good, they're trustworthy, they wouldn't have done the transgression. But if every individual wants to do that, then you can kind of get an overreaction, especially when the Internet comes oh. into play, which is actually maybe you know more punishment than it really is optimal for society. So I think yeah. that's a sort of interesting consequence of this idea. Well, it's, uh, it's totally interesting. Yeah, this is a... I guess we may be outpacing our environment moral. I mean, all of a sudden we can put it out on Facebook and absolutely destroy somebody for right. with a moral decision, and a, but not even a not even know all the facts, right? And then overwhelm right. it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Wow, interesting. Uh, let's take a break, Jillian. <laughs> We're speaking um, with Jillian Jordan from Yale University. She's a Ph.D. candidate that is talking about an article she wrote called Evolution of Moral Outrage, 
I'll punish your bad behavior to make me look good. There are extremes, aren't there? And uh, you may be seeing some of this going on in our political world today, believe it or not. You know, you may have a moral outrage against one of the candidates and spreading it, sharing it, and, and creating maybe an unbalanced view of things. We'll take a break, come back, continue our discussion with Jillian Jordan. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. everybody to the Matt Townsend show. Interesting subject today. We're talking about uh, the evolution of moral outrage. People benefit by being, you know, really strong about a moral issue. You know, how many times on YouTube, on um, how many times on Facebook, on Instagram, have you seen just some post that people just blow up? I can't believe you said that. And everyone jumps on board. Uh, joining us now is a researcher, Jillian Jordan, um, who is a Ph.D. candidate at Yale University in the Department of Psychology. She has been studying and done a study on uh, the evolution of moral outrage, also wrote an article on it. Uh, Jillian Jordan, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Hey, you wrote a really interesting, uh, or you were part of it, an op-ed, it looks like, in the New York Times, where you yeah. mentioned you mentioned this example of um, a woman named Justine Sacco, where mm-hmm. where people's moral outrage went a little bit too far. Tell us just just talk about that story a little bit and why why we need to be careful of our own moral outrage. Yeah, so I mean, this is a case of I think sort of a disproportionate response that results from a lot of individuals all feeling motivated to express their moral position. So um, the story of Justine Sacco is that she sort of wrote this uh, tweet before she went on a trip to Africa that some people interpreted as a racist comment. Um, She talked about how she was unlikely to get AIDS in Africa because she was white. Um, And other people sort of interpreted it as what she said it was, which was kind of an ironic joke about um, the sort of unfortunate disparity in... Yeah, the statistics, basically. Yeah. Right. But, you know, other people thought this is just like a rude comment making light of the suffering of others. And so she posted this tweet, and then she got on the flight, which was an 11-hour flight, and when she landed... It had just completely exploded. She was the number one worldwide trend on Twitter and getting all sorts of hate messages, people who are planning to, like, meet meet her at the airport to attack her when she got plane. I mean, not physically, uh, but... Yeah. Um, Protest, and, yeah. Right. And her life was, like, pretty much ruined just overnight um, after posting this tweet. And sort of whatever your perspective is on, you know, was this racist, maybe you think it definitely was, um, it seems still like this is probably an overreaction to have your sort of reputation completely destroyed on the internet with, mm. you know, thousands and thousands of people participating in condemning you. Um, certainly this isn't the kind of response 
this level of transgression would get if it just happened, you know, in daily life and mm-hmm. was observed only by a few people who were there when she said it. Um, so I think this is sort of an example of how on the Internet when a ton of people can find out about somebody's moral transgression, then you just get a huge pool of people who all have an individual incentive to express to, you know, their Twitter followers or friends or acquaintances or whatever that they are not racist by condemning and punishing her behavior. Mm. And when you put that all together, you get this sort of seemingly crazy disproportionate response, um, which I think is really interesting because, you know, if people were punishing for the purpose of having the effect on her receiving a just sort of uh, response to her racism, like they just wanted to participate in getting justice served or whatever, then... It seems like they would be very sensitive, oh, to the fact that, oh, already a lot of people have responded negatively to her. I don't need to further that. She's kind of already gotten the just punishment for what she did. But it seems like that's not really what's, at least um, unconsciously, like that's not really the incentive that people Mm -hmm. are responding to. They don't have an incentive to make sure she gets a just punishment. What they have an incentive to do is to communicate to the people around them that they're trustworthy and that they're not racist yeah. and that they're morally good. And so I think that can lead to these like really crazy outcomes. Well, and it, it almost seems like we will inevitably see more and more of this where most of these people had no idea who Justine Sacco was, right? right. But the, she wrote the message to her friends that know her and would know. I mean, the other thing is she was going, she was going to Africa for a reason anyway, and her friends would have known, her friends would have known her. They Most of them right. would have taken it in context, and then right, I guess right. it takes one person to be offended, and then now, and then others. I, I, apparently, she lost her job because yeah, of right. this. I mean, how does this, where does this end? And I mean, because we see it. We see so many people that are offended for so many reasons, and it seems like there there are good reasons to be offended, and then there are people that are just, you know, hangers-on that just— want to ride the the moral train somewhere. Yeah, definitely. I think that's right. Man, does this is there something we can do as a psychologist teach us what what do we do to make sure that we are not just, you know, ganging up and glomming on to people that are having a moral, you know, that are that are just on a moral, I don't know, witch hunt. Yeah, I mean, I think it's good just to think reflectively about, you know, your own moral outrage and I mean, of course, I don't think it makes it wrong to be outraged right. to find out that, you know, perhaps it has this, um, like, it, from an ultimate perspective, it sort of exists to benefit your reputation. I mean, I think, you know, the exact same thing can be said for why you help your friends. Like, from an ultimate perspective, this exists so you'll have a good reputation and your friends will help you in exchange. And, like, so mm-hmm. in some ways this can be thought of as selfish. And, like, of course I wouldn't say... So that means it's bad to help your friends. Like, and, you know, by analogy, I don't think it's bad to express moral outrage, even though it may exist in part as a form of personal advertisement, because, you know, I think this is an important part of who we are as humans. And as I said, I think it typically has a lot of positive consequences for society. So, yeah. I mean, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think what would be good is to sort of think reflectively about, you know, in a particular case, like, um, is my outrage going to do more good or more bad for the world? And, like, perhaps in certain cases where 
there's already been a huge response and, you know, perhaps the intentions behind the transgression actually aren't that clear. Um, you know, maybe, maybe it really wasn't that, that bad, but it was, it's clear that it's perceived by some people to be bad. And, you know, you can jump on this movement to, um, punish someone, but, you know, upon reflection, perhaps that's not necessarily appropriate given what's already happened. And I think it's good to be reflective about that kind of thing. Um, and to just kind of think about, you know, where your outrage is coming from and if you think it's actually going to do good for whatever goals you have. Do you sense, it seems like to me it could backfire too. If, if you're the person, you know, you're the friend that's morally outraged about everything and, Mm -hmm. I mean, if if anybody sees you as too extreme, where everything yeah. becomes a moral outrage, uh, it seems like it would backfire and you'd lose trust with people. That's true. Yeah, definitely. And so I think that, um, you know, for the most part, people are, are quite good at doing these types of trade-off calculations. Like, yeah. if I don't seem outraged at all, then people will think, you know, I don't, I don't care about these issues and then that makes me less trustworthy. But also, if I get too angry and belligerent about everything, then people will sort of want to stay away from me because I seem too judgmental or unstable or unforgiving. And so, you know, I mean, of course, nobody's perfect at balancing their social behavior um, to sort of appear optimal to others. But I think, you know, people are implicitly aware of the type of trade-off I'm describing. Mm. No, totally. Um, Well, and I, I think it's fascinating what we're finding out about humans and human behavior that... It's not just an inherent moral outrage. Sometimes it's payday too, right? You get to elevate yourself while being outraged. And I guess sometimes it is right. just – you just – we have compassion. I mean that's part of being human too and the compassion may make this even more outrageous for us. Definitely. That's powerful. Well, we appreciate you. Jillian Jordan, uh, when are you done with your PhD? When do you defend your dissertation and everything? Um, I have two more years after this one. Oh, Jillian. Come on. <laughs> Hang on. Two more years. You're almost there. Well, we appreciate you being on the show. Thanks for your yeah, great no work. And uh, keep helping us understand human behavior. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. Good luck. Jillian Jordan from Yale University. But a lot of people, remember, get a high. They get a little moral push, a little moral pick-me-up simply because they're against somebody. But remember, too, there are a lot of people that are outraged because of the immorality of others. It's a crazy world we live in, right? Where you can show anger and frustration, and it still might help you advance morally, in the eyes of others, at least. We'll take a break, folks. Come back, uh, wrap up this first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us, helping you see the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. You know, it's such a the world is tough anyway. Right. And you watch a story. We've been lately watching the story about the nurse at the University of Utah Hospital who didn't want to do a blood draw because uh, on one of her patients because her patient wasn't consenting and she knew the law as a nurse and wasn't going to give the cops the blood draw. Anyway, she was arrested. And it really makes it hard because you you want to have moral outrage. You want to express what you're feeling and, and thinking. 
And so then all of a sudden everybody jumps online and starts expressing without the full story. And um, maybe one of the rules we all could live by is just just try to learn more before you speak, right? Just learn a little bit more before you speak because your mouth will get you into a lot of trouble. There's a, a crazy story of a postal worker that faked cancer and then got paid to miss two years of work. Listen to this. The tale that Caroline Boyle started spinning in 2015 was grim. She told colleagues that the cancer had attacked her white blood cells, ravaged her immune system, leaving Boyle too weak to come into work at the U.S. Postal Service office in Aurora, Colorado. Boyle needed to rest and work from home, according to the notes scribbled by her doctor. But there was one problem that later confirmed Boyle, who was 60 years old, had constructed the elaborate ruse. The doctor's name was misspelled. In a note, presumably detailed Boyle's non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and the signature was botched. Boyle was convicted of fraud Tuesday, brought down by the U.S. Postal Service investigators. A district judge then handed down a sentence of five years probation, and um, you won't believe what else he did. It included six months of home confinement with an electronic monitor, along with a $10,000 fine and restitution of exactly $20,798, according to acting U.S. attorney for the Colorado, for Colorado, Bob Troyer. Now, notice that restitution figure represents some or most of the amount Boyle claimed for administrative sick leave that she was wrongly paid. And U.S. District Judge uh, Raymond Moore added even more to the sentencing. He ordered her to serve 652 hours of community service at a cancer treatment center. I think he also made her mail all of his correspondence and used the stamps that you have to lick <laughs> manually. Yeah, you have to you have to lick every stamp. So he, the judge wanted her to serve 652 hours of community service at a can- cancer treatment center, which is precisely how many hours she falsified on her sick leave report. So be careful. You're going to get caught. Just shut your mouth. It's the men so close to retirement, too. Oh, I know. She she was so close. 60. Come she on. She was home free. Wow. But then then had to fake a cancer diagnosis. Anyway, it's a crazy world we live in, isn't it? And yet, in the end, do you suggest it's going to get better? Well, it will if you get better, right? This is about us. Each and every one of us can uh, perform better, be better, be maybe a little more, more attentive, try to understand a little bit more. That's the goal of the show. Give you a little hope. Give you, give you a few ideas. Maybe see if we can give you some more patience while we're at it. We'll continue the journey, folks, after this, uh, this little break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We, uh, you're coming to you from BYU Radio right here on Sirius XM 143. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Happy days, friends. Happy Tuesday to you. You made it through an extended weekend. And now, hey, look, it's already Tuesday. You're moving right along. You haven't lost anything. In fact, you've gained You've gained just a shorter weekend or a shorter week. And by the way, uh, so much to talk about this hour. Jeff, we didn't even get an update on Jeff's trip to Bryce Canyon with his <laughs> cute family. You took your little daughters and son. I guess you let you didn't leave 
him home, did you? Oh, no. You took the boy with you. Oh, yeah. And you went uh, to one of the great national parks, Bryce Canyon, and and I'm sure just hiked it up, hiked it down, sweat left and right, lots of camping. Well, you know, you should know that the uh, our trip kind of coincided with my efforts to lose weight, right? Yeah. So as we're getting there, we spend the whole night Friday getting there, staying in a hotel, and my wife's assuring me, you can eat what you want this weekend because you're just going to, you know, work it all off when we go hiking tomorrow. Oh, no. So the girls have such a great time at the hotel that we decide, oh, we'll just, we'll stay. They can swim some more. They can watch TV. Yeah. We'll just check out yeah. when it's time to check out. So we do that. By the time we get to Bryce Canyon National Park, we go check out the visitor center and we eat lunch. So it's an hour and a half before we actually get on a trail. Before we even get to the trail, my daughters are insisting that they're so tired <laughs> they cannot lift another foot. They can't do it. They can't do it. And my wife is holding my three-month-old who's having difficulty breathing. I don't know if it's the elevation or yeah. what. So we get about a quarter of a mile down one trail, and they're done. Oh, and we turn right back around. Oh, boy. And I'm carrying them uh, in turn. Because they can't walk anymore. Yeah, so you lost. And uh, you're sweating. So I didn't really lose all the weight that I probably gained by eating the things that I wanted to. Oh, boy. Did you throw down the gauntlet with like, okay, this is the last time we're coming to the park? No. You didn't do that? No. Darn it. So I think we just decided. You a great opportunity. Next time, let's just go somewhere different, stay in a hotel, and then we can go home. Wow. Well, I'm sorry. That sounds... Um... And we also decided the next time we go to a national park, our kids have to be much older or we're just going to go by ourselves. Yeah. Think of the hiking you two could have done. You know, We could have done the Rainbow Trail or the Widow's Peak or whatever they're, it's called. Boy, and you're, the sad thing is you're not um, allowed anymore to just leave your kids in the car. Like back in the day, you could. Just roll the window down. Yeah. You're fine. Yeah. When, I, when I grew up, you could leave your kids in the car. You never had to buckle them into the car. You just walk away. Back then, as mom and dad, you just keep walking and the kids had to follow you. Right? But now, I must say. It's different. Bryce Canyon National Park. Yeah. Some great views of the hoodoos. Pardon? Hoodoos. Who do, who do what? That, that's what they're called, hoodoos. Are those the little like goblin things? Uh, they're more like orangey red pillars. Yeah, who does? Yeah. I do. You do? Is that the park where the guy... No, no, no. That guy that, again, we just talked about moral outrage. People got morally outraged when this this happened, but that was out in eastern Utah. Oh, yeah, that's the... In the um, Goblin Valley Goblin where Valley. he knocked over some, uh, some, some upright structures some, some of rock. scout leader knocked over a, a rock formation. It was that's... unsafe. Yeah. He was making it safe by pushing over thousands of year old. Unbelievable. Well, I'm sorry that didn't go well for you and the family, but uh, we had a great time. That's great. It sounds like really what you need to do is just take the kids to ho- to a hotel more often. Mm-hmm. Or a motel. They'd be pleased as punch to just do that. Mm. If there's no exercise involved and it's just TV and swimming, yeah. they'll love it. Well, just so you know too, there's four other national parks I think you could go to. Okay. So so we'll burn through another <laughs> vacation day to do that. My wife and I have contemplated. We, we, we go to this shopping center. Yeah. 
has several stores. We go to you know a couple of them. In that shopping center, it's in the middle of all these neighborhoods. There's there's a whole there's a, there's a hotel. Like, why do you drop? I'm mean, usually you put a hotel ah. near a business area, near a conference right. center, right, near right, an airport. Right. It's in the middle of all these neighborhoods. My there's, wife and I, are, I, for the longest time, we're like, why is that there? Now but then understand. we took our kids somewhere once, and we're like, wow, that looks like a great option. It's like ten miles from my house. Stay the night. Kids will have an awesome time. We don't have to go anywhere. No, we're right there, and just here's our little. And you just drive around because they're not looking. Weekend. They're not watching where they're going. Right. So you just drive around in circles for an hour. You can go get dinner. That's different than every other day of the week. Boy, oh just boy. Make, kids ruin a what? lot of things. Oh, ho, 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 ho. No, they do. No, no, no. Kids are doing exactly what kids are supposed to do. I know, but when it comes to hey, let's go to the national park, or hey, let's do anything. Yeah. You know. That might be a little bit difficult, like, I don't know, staying a deck yesterday. P- kids complain. <laughs> you know what, I'm though? I'm so tired. If we're honest with ourselves, how many of our parents' vacations did we ruin? I ruined every one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mainly because it involved an 18-hour road trip to San Diego. Oh, yeah. Mm. <laughs> I'm supposed to be happy as we drive through Las Vegas and that desert middle of the summer wow you guys went on vacations that's cool for you Mm, we would just go from southern california to utah yeah that's not fun but my dad would take out a row of seats and Ah, he would pad all of the luggage with blankets and pillows so we would just lie down and sleep the whole time what a good dad yeah you can't do that anymore either i I used to just i used to lay down in the back window just right under the glass. Would you wave at on people behind show. you? Yeah. Be that kid? Well, I used, I did, I did. was waving until I w- became so dehydrated and sunburned that I couldn't move my arms. Mm. Then Can I I'd... get some water back here? <laughs> Little water. You always want water. Then we'll have to go to the bathroom. No water for you. And then once I went, once I was unconscious, then my mom knew it was time to pull over, hydrate me. Oh, going to the bathroom on road trips, that's a whole other topic there. I think that's actually Thursday's topic. We can't really talk about it right now. We'll get on, we'll get on that topic next Thursday, folks. You're not going to want to miss that. Today we're going to be talking about textbooks in the digital world. Uh, remember the day when the, our kids would tip over because they had so many textbooks. Now you can use more digital devices. And is it is it happening? I mean, realistically, do your kids need an iPad now in order to get all the textbooks they would need in high school? They need some Maybe. device. Should I be concerned if my kid's teacher doesn't seem to be digitally inclined? That's the problem is many aren't. And like yet- last year, his teacher was like, here's an app. Everyone sign up and then we'll, we, we, you can contact her almost immediately on yeah. that app. Like you, you, you'd send the message and we'll come right back of an answer. And she's really responsive. Mm-hmm. This year, it's like, well, there's an email. And you fire off the email, and a couple days later, we got a response. You're like, uh, "What's going on? Why can't you just respond to an email? What's going? You know?" So, do I want my teacher that responsive? Should yeah. it, it, is the digital things in classroom, the, the computers, the tablets, are they a distraction or do they help? No. Well, think about like if all of a sudden you can watch a display from the Smithsonian Institute that's full digital graphics. It's all of these incredible things, and it has everything to do with what you're studying. How amazing would that be? So can these university – these companies that put out these textbooks for university students, 
Can they simply just make like one little tweak to a video or a digital copy yeah. of a textbook and then charge you another $100? Probably. It's the American way. That's, uh, how, that's how they do it. It's a new edition. And they don't even need to print the book. But what if all of a sudden, too, they could lower the cost? So instead of your textbooks being you know, $1,000 at a university, what if all of a sudden it's $200, but it's all on an app? How cool would that be? Were you ever defiant and just said, no, I'm not going to buy the new textbook because there's one word that's different from the other textbook. And then you stuck it to them and you just kept the old one. Yeah. And then I I think I failed that class (laughs) (laughs) because I didn't prepare for the right test. We'll get to all of that fun about textbooks in the digital world, the changing environment for all of our children and and really what might be expected to what we you know, what tools we need to move forward and to help our kids move forward in school. We'll get to that, plus, of course, uh, headlines, empty news. We've got uh, some crazy headlines that, um, you know, a New Mexico man allegedly tried to carjack three football players. Allegedly. Uh, mistake of your lifetime. Yeah, he got pummeled. Somebody's going to pay for that one. We'll talk about that, plus some other empty news. But first, to the real headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on? Congress gets back to work today. That was a warning. The end of the month brings several Thank critical can't-miss deadlines. First Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin has urged lawmakers to raise the debt ceiling by September 29th to prevent the government from running out of money to pay its bills. Then, when the new fiscal year begins October 1st, be like the next day, Congress must also have passed a measure to fund most of operations of the federal government to avoid a shutdown. It's likely that the House and the Senate will pass a short-term continuing resolution to buy themselves some more time to negotiate a longer deal. They will kick the can down the road. You know what? It seems done. like that they're doing a lot of the can kicking. Yeah, at some point you just can't do that. They also have a uh, have to pass Hurricane Harvey funding. President Trump wants to tie raising the debt ceiling to Hurricane Harvey funding, which should tick off the House Freedom Caucus. So there's <laughs> that to look forward to. There's also more to accomplish with the funding of health care because that doesn't mm. seem to want to go away. And to top it off, the president would like to get the tax reform. Okay. So all of these things straight ahead are going to be happening. Yeah. Along with that is the fight over the Dreamers with the DACA legislation. Yeah, that's New York on. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo and Attorney General of New York Eric Schneiderman, Mayor Bill De Blasio, Mayor of New York, and Washington Attorney General uh, Bob Ferguson have all vowed to sue President Trump if he ends the Obama era program that protects immigrants from deportation if they were brought to the U.S. as children. Following reports that Trump has already made up his mind to scrap the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, Cuomo declared Monday that New York will not demonize diversity. We will not stand by as 42,000 New Yorkers are deported. Well, is his number. And his. none of them chose to be here. No. These were kids brought over by their parents. And if they do something wrong in a legal fashion, they yeah. end up deported anyways. Well, and they're so great. these are people who haven't done anything wrong. Right. And they're, I mean, think of them. They're paying taxes, they're viable citizens, and their parents brought them here. Says if President Trump rescinds the uh, DACA, we will sue, he wrote. Ferguson uh, from Washington is also joining the fight, vowing that if President Trump vows to follow through on his reported decision to cancel DACA after a six-month delay... Uh, they will file suit to haul the uh, cruel and illegal policy, he says, and they will defend the DACA recipients. There's an announcement set to be uh, today from uh, Attorney General Sessions at what is 11 a.m. Eastern hmm. to discuss this very thing. So we'll see what happens. Oh, boy. Florida declared states of emergency Monday after Hurricane Irma was upgraded to a Category 4. Actually, it's now a Category 5 storm. 
Uh, Florida Governor Rick Scott issued the order uh, after recent forecasts showed the storm reaching parts of South Florida. Puerto Rico Governor Ricardo Rosallo also declared a state of emergency Monday after Hurricane Irma was initially upgraded. The storm is forecast to hit the island of Puerto Rico Wednesday with winds reaching over 140 miles an hour. Irma could be the second major storm to hit the U.S. this year. Ah. And we're not going to be able to fund two hurricane, or are we? I mean, what if you had another hurricane? At they think it might be $180 billion? Could be. For the Houston. For the Houston cleanup. Wow. And then and you have another one hit South Florida. If that happens, <sighs> they're going to want, you know. <laughs> and we're just getting started, right? This is right. just, we're just to the I's. Wait till you get to the W's. And finally, uh, box office rankings for Labor Day weekend remain almost unchanged from last weekend as Hollywood continues its losing streak in North American theaters. With no highly anticipated new releases debuting this weekend, the overall box office revenue for all films combined to $95 million, the lowest in nearly two decades. 20 years. That's harsh. The number one movie was the Sam Jackson, Ryan Ryan Reynolds action comedy, The Hitman's Bodyguard. It made $12 million. Oh, it wasn't a Snakes movie? No. $12 million. $12 million was the top grossing movie. You know, I'm going to predict that that's going to change this weekend. Really? Mm-hmm. You're going out on a limb? Mm-hmm. Is this something – is this some special news from screen cleaning? There's a little film coming out with a two-letter title. Hmm. It. It. Or is it IT? No, it's it. Ooh, those guys from those IT. IT Ooh, movies. They are scary. Engaging. <laughs> is it really called It? Yes. It's a Stephen King novel. I saw the TV miniseries when I was a kid, parts of it, because oh, yeah. I was trying to do it while my mom walked in and out of the room, so you switch the channel real quick. What are you doing, son? Because ah! I'm not supposed to watch it. You don't think your mom <laughs> noticed that? <laughs> no, she knew. But it was just, you know, scary clowns. The yeah. whole thing is just scary clown. And now they've made this movie, and if you've seen the trailers, it's See, very creepy. We Is it really about a clown? Well, the clown is something else. Because you... The, uh, the clown is one of the many manifestations of it. Ah, uh, it's basically uh, what are you most afraid of? Clowns. Yeah, a lot so of people. So he's a clown for most of the time because that's what most people are scared of. I'd I'd also be afraid of like somebody that didn't wash their hands. Okay, at leaving a restroom with dry hands. <laughs> it guys. Huh? IT guys, yeah. I, so, yeah, because they know your passwords. So I've heard that they feel that movie is going to be very popular. For who? People who want to see that movie. Who 60 are those mil? people? Uh, they're, they're saying 60 mil? 60 million people or $60 million? Probably both. Dollar a person? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Movies right. are cheap nowadays. Yeah. You heard? We were looking for a movie to watch and we couldn't find one. Like I mean, to go to. No, that's not one you're going to want to take the family down. No, this isn't. Yeah. Yeah. That's a blah. Stay home and watch Manhunt Unabomber. Hmm? It's a good show. What? There's a show on the really? dis- on Discovery has put together this sort of true life drama yeah. thing. But it's like eight episodes. Mm-hmm. It's a good show. You, you know what watch I it. watched? I did watch the BBC uh, series Victoria on Queen Victoria. Oh. Hmm. Not to back to your Downton Abbey days. Mm-hmm. Nice. It's really good. And this was your suggestion, right? This is not I, your wife's. Yeah, totally mine. Okay, loved it. Mm-hmm. Is she listening? No, oh. I don't think so. But feels like it. 
It's fan- I, she didn't watch it at all. I watched it all by myself. Oh wow, it was fantastic. You know, there's other things to watch. You don't need to watch. No, I think I've watched them all. Really, I've watched everything officially. Hmm. I'm actually going back <laughs> and watching. Now reviewing the library. Interesting. Yeah. I don't. I don't really watch it. I just turn it on a lot of times. But with Victoria, I did watch it. She was a wonderful queen. What did you learn? That's the Victorian age. Uh, apparently, they named it after her. I learned a lot. She married vi- her cousin. Is awkward. it the Victorian age when she was alive, or is that something that you get I think that it name happened in? after? So afterwards, then they named that age. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. it's a little compass so. yeah. to name an age after yourself. Yeah, but what? if you're queen, could you just put out some decree? Mm-hmm. This the, is now the Victorian age. The she Simpsonian was a, she was age. A Nineteen-year-old, huh? huh? I think, nineteen-year-old queen, and they all huh? looked at her like, "What do you know? You punk. You're a punk queen." Mm. She was amazing. Wow, they've she been had nine using children. They've used that word for many, many years. Yeah, punk then. has been – I think it's actually a, ro- a royal word. Oh, wow. Yeah. Punketh. Punketh? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Thou punketh me no more. Yeah. Yeah. Good times. Just a little uh, information that – a little bit about me. Sure, I could watch anything, but I wanted to watch Victoria. I really wish Downton Abbey had kept going. They're going to make a movie. Eh, don't really want to see that. Why? I like you the series. You just finished saying you wish it... I know, but I, I want to see the series. Like, I can hardly wait for the... Is it The Queen? Is that what that name of that other show is? The Queen? The Crown? The Crown. That one. Come on. I want to see that, too. I, I've actually already seen it. I want to see the next year. I love it. I love it. I actually think I, sh- I, think I, I, think I should have been... I think I have royal blood. Really? I didn't want to bring that up today, but I'm pretty sure I have royal blood in me. Well, you're kind of a royal pain. Thank you. Thank you. The royal pain. (laughs) Sounds like a different show. Uh, Okay. We'll get to all of that fun and continue the discussion of the royal movies that uh, you need to see. Honestly, you need to get more into it. It, BBC, they they do a good job. We will continue all of our learning straight ahead, folks. Textbooks in the digital world. A lot to learn and a lot to understand about our future with our children and future of learning when it comes to digital devices. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. For decades, textbooks were seen as the foundation for instruction in American schools. These discipline-specific tomes were a fundamental part of the educational infrastructure assigned to students for each subject and carried in heavy backpacks every day, right, from home to school and back again. The experience of students is much different today. As a scholar of learning technologies and a director for outreach and engagement at Ohio State's uh, College of Education and Human Ecology, our next guest, Nicole Carter Luthi, um, has seen how technological advances and an increase in digital curriculum materials have hastened the move away from text, uh, textbooks. Dr. Uh, Nicole Carter Luthi, thank you so much for being with us today. Good morning. It's my pleasure to be on your show. This is uh, this is, I think, a really big deal because 
for me especially, I, I used to watch my kids lugging huge bags of books to school, like literally bags you could hardly lift. And now I think, man, do all they need today is a is like an iPad to get through? What's going on? What do you see happening with the you know our world of textbooks? Well, we've seen um, quite a huge change in textbooks, and as you said. You know, we all had that experience of um, lugging books back and forth from home to school. And and now a lot of schools are moving away from print books to um, to e-books or digital textbooks. Hmm. And all of the content that the students need for every class can be accessed um, from an iPad, from their phones. Uh, they are walking around with computers in their pockets. So... It's really changed the way that we think about how we access information, how how students interact with and engage with information, and um, certainly been a lot um, a lot nicer for their backs and their shoulders um, <laughs> in the process. Has, how has it impacted quality and, and standard of teaching? It seems like there's huge advantages to technology, and yet uh, also it probably puts a bigger responsibility on a teacher. It does, and one of the one of the challenges that schools have is is in choosing materials that are um, very high quality and um, but also engaging and relevant to their community. Um, with the, the the print textbooks, a lot of the adoptions that happened in the past those were really driven by the large the larger states who. Um, could dictate the kind of content that was contained there. And with digital printing, because there is no actual physical printing, um, textbook companies can be much more flexible and tailor the materials that they're producing to meet the particular needs of Ohio or any hmm. other state. Is it... It seems like costs would come down, um, but I also know that these are businesses, and they usually know how not to lower costs. How is how is that going? I mean, it used to be you'd buy a textbook for a hundred dollars and maybe get whatever fifty back or seven sixty back when you turned it back in. Is there are costs coming down? Um, I think costs are coming down. There, are, for one, there are a lot more companies who are um, participating in. Um, textbook development, if you will, but it's a different kind of, of medium. Um, there's also a lot of free content that's available and content from libraries that have already made bulk purchases. So students can access a lot more content through those digital subscriptions. Um, what I see in a lot of schools is that they are going with an annual subscription for a, um, for fewer numbers of, of students. So in the past where they may have purchased, um, say, a thousand print textbooks, they're now purchasing uh, maybe 500 subscriptions and using those for the students who are taking those courses. And as enrollment goes up or down, they can make those adjustments. So in some ways, it is saving them, um, it is saving them on textbook costs. But it's also giving them the flexibility to go with another product um, if the one that they initially purchased wasn't isn't working. Um, so it gives schools a lot more flexibility. Yeah, as a as a scholar of learning technologies, do you? I mean, where does this 
does it because it kind of can never end really now all of a sudden i'm thinking a video in and and i had it with my son about the eclipse he was he was fascinated with the eclipse 5 or 10 years ago reading um up reading up on it studying it understanding it and now 5 years later when the eclipse actually happened he had all of this information that he probably never learned in his classroom he just learned on his own um i guess there's no end to digital information that can now be brought into a classroom that's correct um it really is it really does open up access to content and and the story that you were just sharing it's your your son who is going out and finding that content um, not the teacher yeah so what we see is really that learning can be more distributed so everyone can be engaged and pursue the individual interest that they have but still bring it back to um, a classroom and so the teacher's role really changes in that case um, not as someone who has all the knowledge and who is than disseminating that to students, but who is really helping students to think about how to assess and evaluate the credibility and the reliability of the information that they have based on their interests. Boy, that's a big responsibility. And I imagine if a teacher is is going through college right now learning to teach in kind of this distributive approach, that's one thing. But what about all of the teachers that are already out there are are you noticing are they able to keep up are they are they catching up or are the teachers struggling uh, i think really the responsibility for um for making sure that teachers are learning right along with the students really falls to the to the school or to the school district in that as they are introducing these new materials into their classrooms they need to make sure that they're providing the professional learning opportunities for teachers so that they have the confidence and the competence that they need um, to use these materials effectively and to keep students engaged. What I, what I see is, um, you know, teachers have always had to adapt because learning is not static. It changes um, from generation to generation. And so they are used to that. Where it gets a little tricky is that sometimes the students have a lot more knowledge because They've grown up digital, and so they have a lot more knowledge, a lot more comfort in using the materials and the devices than the teachers do. And, and if you're a teacher who really likes to um, be in control, that could present a problem because it does require, does require you to let go a little bit and, and let the students um, take the lead on some things. Yeah, and I, I – boy I... – that's sometimes scary. I mean, I've yeah. had a scout troop I let take control once, and we all paid the price. So it's – I guess that's – but really that's – the neat thing about that is all of a sudden these kids start to learn that their learning is up to them. It's not just up to the teacher. That's correct. A lot of the jobs that the students who are in school right now are going to have, we don't know what those are. We haven't – them up yet. They haven't been created. And mm. so the, uh, the ability to learn, to teach yourself, to relearn, um, those are skills that will, will serve them well in the future as um, technology continues to drive um, economic growth and job opportunities. Uh, it's that flexibility in learning that will become more important than the actual um, 
knowledge that you have. Yeah, your ability, yeah, your adaptability, huh, to the content and is is uh, help me understand how this works now. I mean, it, it almost it used to be that you would be given a textbook from a textbook company and they every so many years would update the textbook and make a different, you know, um you know, a different change here or a fix there based on the latest information. But it is. It seems like, in a way, it might you might be better served almost in some dynamic areas as almost having an app or a, um, a website where people can constantly keep accessing the latest examples because there's so many examples in the world that could be brought up in the discussions. How are you? How do they deliver the technology? Is it through app? Is it through downloads? Is it through e? You said eBooks. Any other ways that it's coming out? It's it's really all of those um, examples that you just gave. And so the textbook, if we can really call it that, I mean, the most dynamic ones that um, are on the market today are um, have adaptive technology. And so as students are, individual students are engaging with that text, the um, the software is responding to what they do. So you're working in a, you're using your math textbook and you are watching videos um, of your teacher or perhaps another teacher show how to solve a particular problem and then you're responding to some of those problems, um, the textbooks can actually respond to what you're doing. And students are doing that in an environment that feels very much like an app, um, but it has a lot of content and a lot of um, technological power behind it. Um, so the, what they see, what the students see, really feels um, almost like a game environment mm. where they can, um, using like a, t- a touch screen, they can access different um, aspects of the textbook, go back and watch videos multiple times if they are having trouble understanding the content. Um, they can see it a different way. They can skip ahead and um, gloss over information that they don't need. So it's really helping them to be smarter. Now, where it does present a problem is in cases where students really need to focus and do some very close reading. In that case, a digital textbook might actually be more distracting. And so it's always thinking about what the task is and using the tool that's most appropriate. And there's also, you know, parents worry about screen time and eye strain. And Mm. so it's not a perfect solution. Um, It's really about making decisions that are appropriate for the task and for the developmental level of the child or the student. You could really see how this, this could go crazy. And, I mean, I could even see you could make it so interesting in a lot of the learning areas that you could keep the children going back to their learning app just to see more and more digital examples of whatever they're learning. I mean, this could I, I would love to see my kid uh, into his learning app so deeply that um, that he is getting eye strain as opposed to just getting <laughs> eye strain from playing video games. Yeah, the um, the textbooks really are amazing. If you see some of the um, some of the more current examples, and students are very much engaged in those. Um, I think what's also interesting about it is, um, it all, you know, they find out things that they would not have uncovered 
um, using a print book. So they might, there might be a couple of lines about, let's say, the eclipse. To go back to an example um, you gave earlier, a student who's really intrigued by that can simply click on that, and it takes them to all sorts of other resources. Mm. Um, you know, teachers are really curating content now. They have their textbook, but then they are also bringing in lots of other kinds of resources and packaging those um, in ways that that would have been much more difficult for them to do in the past. Does it put the teacher in a different – as a curator versus as kind of a um, a handout creator where she might yeah. – or he might be copying someone else's handout and, you know, the whole old handout days, every day you had all these handouts. I, I wonder – because there seems to be even a bigger obligation if I am all of a sudden starting to link you to other sites or link you to other content – Teachers probably have to go above and beyond to make sure that those other sites and links are clean and healthy and, and you know, serve the purpose. There is a lot more work on the part of the teacher. Um, I see teachers doing some really um, innovative things like, you know, they record all of their um, lectures in class so that students can um, review those when they're doing homework, you know, when they get home and mm. then they can't quite remember what happened in class. Um, I also see them doing things like using QR codes and putting those right on the handout or right um, in the the work that students are doing. So, you know, if you're, they're doing homework and run into a problem, they can use a QR code and that will link them to a help video or some other resources that can help them. So you're right. There is a lot more um, upfront investment of time for teachers to create this kind of content. Um, and it, it is, in some ways, it would be easier to to kind of pull out a textbook and say, you know, we're going to start at chapter one and mm-hmm. go until the until we run out of days of school. Um, but that would really be doing a disservice to our students. And we know that um, those kinds of approaches are really going to have limited results um, in the future. So the ability to have students and sift information and understand how to synthesize that, those are, those are really valuable skills, and we, we need to give them opportunities to do that. Yeah. Well, let's continue talking about this and take a break. Uh, be back more with Dr. Nicole Carter-Luthi talking about textbooks in a digital world, how we can teach our kids to sort better, sift, and synthesize what they're learning, and and know how to really be their own curator of information. We'll continue the journey. This is The Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. We are speaking with Dr. Nicole Carter-Luthi, who serves as the Director of School Outreach and Engagement in the College of Education and Human Ecology uh, at The Ohio State University, and we're honored to have her on the show as she walks us through textbooks in the digital world. Uh, We appreciate you again. Thank you, Dr. Nicole Carter-Luthi, for your time. Oh, you're very welcome. This is um, one thing as as I think about the the kind of movement into the digital age with our learning, our growing is, and you brought it up in the last uh, segment, 
I mean, it might be it's great for learning and, and having a lot of other resources at your at your fingertips. One downside is just reading. Um, I we've all summer we tried to get our kids to read. But if you don't hand them a book, um, they, they actually probably do a lot of reading just online. But it, our our kids keeping up with their reading without having the hard paper books? And is there any research about uh, how well their reading actually works when they're doing it on um, some other form of technology? Um, you know, the research is fairly mixed on that. And um, one of the things, uh, there's some research that shows that comprehension does take a hit when um, students are using um, digital text. And so if they're, if the plan is to, or the purpose of the lesson is for students to do some really close reading um, or, you know, where they need to pay very close attention to details, that may be something that um, is better done on, on print. And in what a lot of teachers do is um, they have students annotating the, the text, the physical printed text, in ways so that they can model for them how to do that kind of reading and then apply those same skills to a digital um, a digital text. Mm. Um, we know that um, certainly once they enter the workforce that a lot of the materials that they're going to encounter are going to be digital as uh, we see a lot of um, a lot of industries moving to that because it's it's a cheaper more efficient way of of sharing documents and sharing information. So um, it's in some ways it's a matter of efficiency and cost savings, but it's also um, a way for students to develop those skills that they're going to need when they move into the workforce. Yeah, the real, the real future too. I mean, I just had a person I was talking to last night talk about how their law firm is going uh, paperless which right. in a law firm is like, what? Everything's been on paper. And now they they pretty much want to eliminate paper to any degree that they can. Um, and so it, it almost seems like you're going to have to gather and gain a whole new discipline. What are some ways we could better prepare our kids to be able to keep their reading levels up, their comprehension levels up, but also, like you said earlier, learn to sort and sift and synthesize data? In, um, in kind of digital media, I think one of the most critical things is for students to be good consumers of the content. Um, you know, we hear a lot about fake news, and we see a lot of information online that, um, you know, people can manipulate information. And so our students need to go into any sort of task or even just casual um, reading of content with a very, um, very skeptical um, kind of mindset. So they they need to learn to look at who is who is writing this this information. What is the source? Um, how does it square up against other information that they know? Um, they have to to really be savvy consumers of digital content because there is a lot of inf- misinformation on the web. And simply because uh, some content is on a website that looks legitimate, it doesn't mean that. It's actually factual information. So that would be the first thing. Um, The second would be to um, make sure that students are reading a whole variety of um, different kinds of text. 
And so we see that um, readership of novels does take a little bit of a dip in the summer, but it's important for especially young children to continue to read so they don't have that, that summer slide, as we call it, um, that happens, can happen during the summer. And so think about um, kind of a summer reading challenge. You know, we're kind of moving into fall now, but um, we, in my family, we, um, I have a family of athletes, and so competition is always a good motivator for yeah. them. Um, but think about, you know, what motivates your, your own child and um, make that part of that, that reading process. Um, you can also just read books as part of a, you know, we're all going to read the same book. You know, a lot of universities do that as part of a freshman experience where all of the students will read the same book and then at some point in the fall they'll have an, that author come in to talk about the book. Um, so those kinds of things um, where you can make the learning more social and bring others into that process are um, good ways of engaging children and even teenagers into, um, into reading. Boy, I, I mean, I guess that's part of the key. And again, there's there's no end. You could you could read a book and actually get online and go see two or three interviews from the author before you ever read the book. Get a whole deeper look at it. I mean, it almost makes Cliff Notes kind of a laugh because it's there's so much other information you can get on on all of this inform, on all of these uh, these the learnings we're having i guess in the end it's making uh, our children a little more multidimensional actually i guess a little more 3d in their learning it is and it's also um making them um take more ownership of their own learning and you know they have as i said earlier they they really um by the time they have a cell phone they have a smartphone, they're really walking around with a computer in their pocket. And so, you know, we refer to them as kind of the, the fidgetal age mm. where their physical world, the digital world have really um, been fused and blurred in a way that they almost expect to be able to reach into their pocket or their backpack and find out information to a question um, on the fly. And so that changes the way you think about how you access information. Um, you know, we find a lot of times, and even in my own family, a question will come up about how to do something. And, you know, our, um, our first instinct is, to, okay, well, let's think about this. And our, our kids' first instinct is, well, let's just ask Google. Yeah, isn't that <laughs> um, true? And don't you love yeah. it when they correct you now, too? And they're like, no, Mom, that's not how you do it. I mean, on right. Google, they say to do it this way. That's right. Um, you know, that's been a phenomenon for um, the, even going back to kind of the millennial age where um, we saw as information became uh, more accessible online that you saw children in the families weighing in on major purchases like which car they were going to purchase or which television <laughs> family should purchase because they had, you know, they were much more savvy at accessing information and, and providing that to their parents. That's amazing. Do you do you sense we're ready for this change kind of from paper to digital I mean financially is is this going to upset the economic models of traditional education? Um, schools are being much more um, 
I think, mindful and strategic in how they're moving into this. So very few school districts are flipping the switch and saying, we're going digital overnight. Um, they're doing that much more incrementally and starting with a particular grade level or a particular um, aspect of the curriculum and making sure that they are providing the training and support for teachers, making sure they have the infrastructure in place. And what I have seen is that that shift is much more gradual. Mm. Um, and so I think, and for the most part, schools are making really smart, really sound decisions about how they move in this direction. Um, but we also have to remember there are large parts of the country where they don't have that kind of access. They don't have high-speed right. Internet access. And so um, that really does create more of a, a digital gap, a digital divide, if you will, um, where students um, in some parts of the state um, really are years ahead of others um, because they have access to more, to more content and more information. And I guess that's an important point that we need to remember, Nicole, that we don't want to leave anyone behind simply because they don't get Wi-Fi uh, or they don't get enough Wi-Fi. I mean, that's th th there's a whole uh, major issue there as well. And it's easy to lose maybe inner city kids that don't have access to certain things or middle America where they just – the Wi-Fi services aren't there. I mean, is, Wi-Fi is becoming really a, a major right um, I think for a lot of people in the United States anyway. Interesting insights from Dr. Nicole Carter Luthi from The Ohio State University. We appreciate her time and her insights and all of us, really. Let's do what we can to, uh, to understand the new digital age, also take advantage of it, and get our kids ready to, to be better curators and innovators, uh, the ability to synthesize their own content. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll uh, take a quick break here and continue the journey in learning as well as some empty news straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Empty news time, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, you a lot of times get, you know, the, the big headlines. You hear those over and over. It's some of the other headlines you may not even know you need to know or need to hear. So we like to get to those with, of course, who better else than Jeff Simpson. Jeff, update us on the empty news. Here is a wonderful example of why you shouldn't be texting while you're driving or, in this case, riding your scooter. So a motor scooter driver watching his phone instead of the road in front of him plunged into a sinkhole Ooh. that opened up in the middle of a street in China. Surveillance camera footage from the road in southwest China shows the sinkhole opening up shortly after 2 a.m. in the middle of the road. A man riding a motor scooter appears a few seconds later and is seen looking down at his phone instead of the road, causing him to ride directly into the hole. I watched the video of this. Really? It's crazy. See, don't check your phone when you're driving near a sinkhole. Right. So luckily he didn't sustain any injuries. Uh, the sinkhole was 16 feet wide, 26 feet long, Unbelievable. and more than six feet deep. That's, uh, you know. And we have some audio, actually. Oh. Oh. There they go. Oh. Yeah. So 
look up from your phone. Don't. Or pull over. You know what? Don't. Don't even have your phone if you're driving. And by the way, not because you may not know when the sinkhole's coming. Right. That's the neat thing about a sinkhole is they could just spring up on you. Yeah. Another quick story. Don't try to hijack a car filled with three football players yeah. that have just come from practice. <laughs> so he, uh, this guy, Angelo, Angelo Drew Martinez, who's a 20-year-old, he asked for a ride from them and uh, kept changing the location of where he wanted oh, to be dropped boy. off. Yeah. So he eventually pulls out a gun and orders them out of the car. Oh, boy. The players complied, but when they reportedly saw Martinez fumble with the gun, one of the players got back in the car and punched him in the face. Mm. The, rest of the, the rest of the players joined in the brawl, restraining Martinez until police arrived at the scene. In his mugshot, uh, his eyes are swollen shut and uh, covered in black and purple bruises. Yeah. And I think we have some audio of that too, real quick. Angelo's got a very um Wow. He has a very high voice. That brought to us by Adam Sandler. Okay. <laughs> Sounds a lot like Adam Sandler. <laughs> Okay, well, there you have it. What more do you need to know, folks? Don't uh, get in. Don't try to hijack a car with three football players in it. The lessons you don't get anywhere else. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at one eight five five Chat BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show, hour number three of the program. If you missed the first two hours, you can go check it out on iTunes, on TuneIn, on Stitcher. Go to BYURadio.org. It's everywhere. You're not going to want to miss it because, of course, great guests, great ideas, and love from the gang here at the Matt Townsend Show. Wow. Terry South's here exuding nothing but love. Mm. Jeff Simpson is also in a loving mood. Because he went to Bryce Canyon as a family in an effort to take the kids out to nature, get them hiking. And about a quarter of the mile in, all he heard was, are we there yet? (laughs) It was a great moment. And then it all fell apart. When you have a five-year-old and a three-year-old, you can't really hike. You you can. It depends on your kid. I can hike. They can't. Yeah, you can hike, but your your kid really think about it. Those little legs already feel like they've run a marathon. Just getting to breakfast, getting into the visitor center, hmm. going to the restroom three times, they're already exhausted. They don't have the the muscle tone you do, Terry. They don't. This is true. They don't. I've watched my kid try to walk mountains, and you're like, "What are you doing? Yeah. How can't you physically do this?" It's not really a physical thing. It's more of I don't want to do this. This is hard, Dad. No, they just would prefer to be back in the hotel watching TV how, or swimming. How, how do you instill a work ethic in That's, the sense of just when some anything gets tough, not quitting? You, you have to make them work. You just work. My son-in-law has one of the best work ethics you've ever seen. Actually, all of his brothers do because the parents just made him work. We just work. 
We spend all day, Saturday, working in the yard. Everyone's going to work. Would it have been wrong of me to say, there is a bear that is gaining on us. We need to get down this mountain. Okay, great question. Are you thinking long-term or short-term psychological benefit? (laughs) Because there's an immediate short-term benefit. You'd get them running. You'd get them hiking. Long-term, they would probably need to be hospitalized. Hmm. Hmm. All right. Probably not worth it. So what you're saying is pros and cons. Pros and cons. A little thought from the Matt Townsend Show on how to parent your children with fear. We Beautiful. End scene. My first move is always take away the iPad. Oh, yeah. No, that's great. That's I great. make him earn the iPad. I go, if you want that, you have to earn it. You need to do work to play. I thought, yeah, because you have him do child labor in an well, iPad factory. Yeah. Labor. It's like, you know, set the table. Six months, son, you'll get an iPad. (laughs) Got to build it yourself. (laughs) You just have to turn out enough widgets. Uh, There's there's a problem. Kids need – we need a lot of help with how to raise kids. Today we're going to be speaking with Julie Nelson, the bomb mom we call her, on how to raise compassionate children. Hmm. We can even ask her how do you raise kids that have a work ethic. At what point do you need to be concerned about the work ethic? Is six-year-old? Is it – Ten-year-old? Yeah. Well, I would say every child has to learn to deal with the difficult things. So a five-year-old has a difficult issue. Four-year-olds have – so you could just start where they are. But if you don't – let me just tell you. If you don't have it fixed by 12, 13, 14, 15, you're in for a really difficult few years because then these kids at like 15, they actually think they have an opinion that matters. (laughs) When does that happen? It's just teenage that's Man. the teenage years. So how do you handle nieces and nephews that are so literal that if their chore chart says that they're supposed to empty the lower rack of the dishwasher and somebody else mistakenly Did that. emptied that one, they refuse to empty the upper rack of the dishwasher? See, now that's interesting. What so, do you do? Well, honestly, I wouldn't divide chores like that. My wife is really good at like dividing chores in a way that aren't seemingly natural. Right, like upper and lower level of the dishwasher. Right, but I would, I really try to drill in my kids. We are all going to have to do it until it's done. So you have certain jobs, and your job should be the dishwasher. But our- up and bottom, up and and silverware, you're going to do the whole thing and load the next load in. That's your job. But then what do you do if there's one of the kids that is more motivated than the other and just wants to get through it so that they can move on, but the other one's kind of just dragging their yeah. feet? Yeah. See, that's why you may not want to stack up the chores so Speedy is behind Slowpoke. Or if you really want to create some camaraderie, make them do it together and then let Speedy have to influence Slowpoke. And then usually there will be blood and somebody crying. But you may have just created – but then how do that turn, how do you turn that into say like a family outing that's supposed to be fun yeah but it may have a little bit of physicality to it and then they just stop no, they just is, don't want to participate well this is parenting 101 right this so is maybe, this is why your this is why your heavenly father your god would want you to learn to parent because i personally believe he's up there just laughing Watching you try to motivate people yeah. to do what's right. So now let me just throw a hypothetical out here. Okay. I mean this is a hypothetical. Yeah. So what if the, the kids just were not doing the housework and I said, kids, there's a bear at the door mm-hmm. and if you don't start working now, I'm going to let him in. 
Yeah. Again, what's your goal? <laughs> if you want, if you want years of counseling, that'll work. I, I wouldn't. A bear would be a different type of motivator. I would try to find something a little more intrinsic, like so, like a wolf. No, like if you guys, if you guys want to, if you guys want to watch a movie, we've got to be done before the timer goes off. Mm. And if we're not, then we'll just have to do something else, like go out and chase a bear. See, but the problem is apparent. You're some of these activities are things that I might actually want to do, and I'm not going to That's miss out on doing these. That's it. That's the problem. See, the problem is you've got to determine who the child is in the relationship, because many, many times it could be you, the parent. That's the problem. Being a parent's difficult. I did promise my girls Wendy's one time, or a frosty from Wendy's. And they just did not do what I said. So I said, okay, Sorry. let's go get a Frosty. I got them all in the car. And I ordered one Frosty. For you. I took it home and I was like, okay, we got to wait till we get home. We sat down at the kitchen table and I just started digging into this Frosty. <laughs> you better believe they ran into that, to that other room and started cleaning up. I bet they did. After they dried all their tears, of course. Wow, you're brutal. But that was a, the one uh, – no, that's a, the only time I've done something like that. Did it work? It worked immediately. See, by the way, so that's tough love right there. That's tough love. And then were the kids asking the rest of the night, can we can we go get ours now, Dad? No, we just shared. Oh, you you then gave I got one. a big one. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's many ways to was destroy your children. No, that seems oh, – I honestly okay. think that's very – I call that you know parenting with teeth. Of course, cold teeth from a Frosty that you didn't give your children, <laughs> but teeth nonetheless. Uh, today, we'll be talking with the Bomb Mom, how to raise compassionate children. Also, of course, visit our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up uh, on their show at the top of the hour. I'm sure a little review, got to be, of the football game. Hmm. That was kind of uh, worrisome. Yes. Hmm. But, I mean, they, they they held LSU to 20-something points. 27? Or did they just act disinterested after a while? Well, I'm sure. A little bit of both. And, uh, yeah, then all of a sudden they put in the people you don't want injured, you know, the fourth string or whatever. Right. But, uh, yeah, it's kind of nerve-wracking. I don't know how these sports guys do it all the time. Talk about the game and then watch the game and then have to recover from the game. Mm. And then talk about the next game. Or just move on from the game because it was so bad. Well, and it's now rivalry week with the biggest rival of their lives, right? Mm. That they haven't beat in almost, what, 10 years? Yeah, but it's always different. This this year's different. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a home game. Right. Home game. Right. So we'll get five to others, but that's we'll, fine. we'll get to that fun. Not five. Uh, plus, of course, a hero story. Some more empty news. We're going to cram it all into one hour, folks. But first, to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's up? Wildfires forced thousands to flee their homes across the U.S. during a sweltering, smoke-shrouded holiday weekend of record heat. Wow, that's hard to say. The fires over the weekend caused evacuations near Glacier National Park in Montana. Many other parts of the West compelled crews to rescue about. 140 hikers who had spent the night in woods after fire broke out on the popular Columbia River Gorge Trail in Oregon and led firefighters to step up efforts to protect the 2,700-year-old grove of giant sequoia trees encroached by flames near Yosemite National Park in California. A sudden gusty series of rainstorms followed, uh, allowed Los Angeles, however, to cancel evacuation orders for a wildfire that the mayor called the largest in the city's history. So there's lots of wow. parts of the nation on fire also. I, that, uh, fire and water. 
No. We, but they just don't ever meet. No. I guess I could be grateful we didn't have to be rescued from our hike. There totally. You go. Very blessed. There you go. Uh, back to the some of the natural disasters in Hurricane Harvey. At least 13 Superfund toxic waste sites in Houston have been flooded or otherwise oh, damaged boy. by Hurricane Harvey, adding a new element of risk to cleanup efforts. Superfund sites are designated by the EPA. They are the nation's most contaminated land. Since Harvey flooded uh, occurred, the EPA has made an aerial assessments of 41 Superfund locations in and around Houston and identified 13 in bad shape. Teams are in place to investigate possible damage to these sites as soon as floodwaters recede and personnel are able to safely access the sites. The EPA said in response to this, the, the AP over the weekend inquired as to why in-person investigations have not been made. AP reporters already visited seven sites. They went by boat. They uh, crossed rivers. They uh, flew in in helicopters. They were able to access these sites as reporters. Yeah. But the EPA had said that we haven't been able to get to those sites yet. Then the next day, the EPA attacked the reporters of the story from the AP, who one of them was in Washington, D.C., right. and one of them was in Houston. The guy in Houston accessed the, the sites. The guy in D.C. obviously didn't. They go, look at this reporting. One guy's not even in Houston. Yeah, we have people on the we scene. We have people on the scene, and this guy's doing some of the background work. In, in D.C. So the EPA is trying to blame the reporters for their lack of getting to the actual is this, sites. Is this the same EPA that President Trump didn't like and yeah. kept saying we need to shut down or uh-huh. whatever? Yeah, okay. same one. Same one. So it's just interesting, the response yeah. to the reporters there. Billionaire Elon, Elon Musk, chief executive officer of Tesla Motors, spent his Labor Day morning thinking and tweeting about the potential cause for the next major global conflict. Oh, yeah. The Tesla and SpaceX CEO warned in a series of tweets Monday that artificial intelligence, or AI, would be the likely cause of World War III as countries ramp up competition over the technology. Musk has frequently vocalized his fears about the risk of AI, saying in July that it's the greatest risk we face as a civilization. At the time, Musk called for governmental intervention to oversee AI development. Musk's comments on, or Musk's comments on Monday came as, after Russia's Vladimir Putin said, in, said that whichever country becomes a leader in the AI sphere will become the ruler of the world. Whoa. Yeah. Hey, whoever owns artificial intelligence area, sphere... Is the is the next ruler of the world? And then Musk said that that race will spark a war games type scenario, like the the movie from the eighties, oh, War Games, boy. and that artificial intelligence will lead to conflict. And world leaders, it says the war may be initiated not by the country's leaders, but by one of the AIs themselves, one of the artificial intelligence deeming. Uh-oh. As it says, as it decides what a preemptive strike is most probable uh, probable path to victory. Don't we just? It seems first. like all you need to do to beat AI unplug it is just have a switch. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> just just a big off switch on the back. But wouldn't the artificial intelligence be intelligence enough to bypass the switch? Oh, now See, that's the problem. Mm, now you're talking. How intelligent smack. are we making these things? Yeah. Well. It's more of a fun topic, rather. But the fact that, that Vladimir Putin came out and said that whoever gets artificial intelligence first will rule the world. Well, and apparently, so he must be investing apparently, highly. Apparently. <laughs> okay. And finally, if you've ever walked barefoot on asphalt on a hot summer day, you know that it gets pretty hot. It also does a really great job of sharing all that stored heat with its surroundings. Yeah. That can make a huge difference in the temperature in areas where there's a lot of blacktop around. In the heavily paved neighborhoods of Los Angeles, for example, the heat... Island effect is very real. L.A. Street Services is working on a fix. The workers 
are uh, spreading a white, it's actually light gray, top coat on several L.A. roadways. Hitting, uh, so they're going, they're painting them white or a lighter color of gray, as much as a 10 degree difference on a summer afternoon, some studies have shown, with the color being different. It says uh, streets in all 15 LA electoral districts have been uh, coded. So they have a street in like every district across the whole city as a pilot project. If the results are anywhere near positive as they have been elsewhere in California, crews will no doubt be whitewashing a whole lot more. A similar test in, uh, Canoga Park, Cuyahoga Park in a city of 600,000, about 30 miles from L.A., saw the temperature on one stretch of road reduce from 93 degrees to 70 degrees. Well, there's your cure to global warming. Or at least the, you know, cities, cities getting an extra boost of heat from the roads. Yeah. And it says in Encino Park, a parking lot that was coated dropped from a blistering 160 degrees to a much more bearable 130. <laughs> oh, yeah. You can really tell the difference. But is do you remember the beginning of the summer? Those were horrible temperatures, and everyone was talking about Arizona. How they're, boy, they're just it's so hot now. You just paint everything, and I I don't know. I think I would. There's a really cool color I love is like turquoise. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, my daughter painted her room once a robin's egg blue. Oh, that's very pleasant, and it created a very cool environment. Yeah. So why not put every road, turn every road, Robin's Robin's egg blue? Do you think it would confuse birds? Yeah. Yeah. Some birds would just go sit on the road trying to hatch their – yeah. Boy, didn't think of that. I mean we'd probably kill the entire bird population. Hmm. Hmm. But? Something to think about. Yeah. Just paint it. Just paint it. It's not a bad idea. That's cool. See, we're learning one day at a time. Up next, Julie K. Nelson will be joining us. The bomb mom, we call her. And uh, she's also the child whisperer. She will be teaching us how to raise compassionate children. Straight ahead. Oh, those lovely children. We, uh, we, we just want to do everything we can to give them a, a leg up in life. And yet, they don't always take advantage of how great we are as parents. Here to walk us through uh, how to raise compassionate children, Julie K. Nelson, the bomb mom, we call her. Uh, also, the child whisperer. Whisper to the children. Take your pick. Take your pick. You can find out more from uh, Julie's, uh, what are we calling it, blog at a spoonful of... Parenting? Yeah, spoonfulofparenting.com. Yeah, a spoon, uh, yeah spoonfulofparenting.com. Uh, by the way, Julie is, uh, has a master's degree in marriage and family and human development and teaches classes as a professor at Utah Valley University, where she teaches classes in applied parenting and marriage and relationship skills. She's great and good to have you here. I've missed you. It seems like you've been... I've missed you, too. You've been busy yeah. out traveling. Traveling, Gallivanting. Mm-hmm. How are you doing? Excellent. Yeah. Healthy, happy, strong. Great. I just had a three-day weekend. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. Yeah. Guess what I did on, on Labor Day? What? No labor. It was awesome. I weeded. Oh, oh I no. Did, I weeded on Saturday. I did nothing. I did it on Saturday. So yesterday was just a non-labor day. Did it you was know? a chill day. You may not know this. Uh, did you know that you have special weeding muscles? Do you? Yeah. And then if you don't use them and then you go use them, your body aches after. <laughs> Yeah, you did not know that. I didn't know that. Yeah, 
It does. Oh. Mine's oh. still aching. Oh, I love to weed. I'm one of those weirdos. Hold on. Yeah. You love to weed? I do. It's crazy. Did you not get the memo? That that's not <laughs> acceptable. People don't love weeding. I know. Um, Julie, you're going to talk to us today about compassionate children. How do you raise a compassionate child? Yeah, it's uh, in the news a lot today with the floods in Texas. And, you know, there's a lot of things going on in our world today that requires us to be a more compassionate people to respond. And I've been, there's a lot of heartwarming stories. I have just been so touched by oh, I know. all the different stories. Um, of people who've reached out to others, local people, and then people who've come into the to the flood zone and have helped. I just watched a news segment last night about those who came down from Utah. It was PAWS, P-A-W-S, that came and rescued all the animals mm. who were left behind. Yeah. Just such compassionate people. How do we raise kids to be others-oriented? Because we're born very self-centered, um, and, it's, and it's an appropriate thing, you know, that we take care of ourselves. And then, right. But eventually we want our teenagers to not think about how I look all the time and what people are thinking about me, but how others are feeling. And so how do we kind of plant those seeds? And I want to talk about that today in light of what's going on in our world today. Is it, I mean, are they born with it? Is it something that we instruct or a little bit of both? A little bit of both, I believe. What do you think? Yeah, I think, I think to some degree it's, it's how we direct their energy, right? Because they could just sit there and be watching these stories and thinking, oh, those are good people. Or you can actually turn them to be that person that starts giving, finding yeah. a way. Yeah. So I've got four points we'll just go over. They're not, of course, all, but just some ideas of how parents out there could help to raise their kids to, be, to recognize the compassion that's within them yeah. and then to strengthen that. One is just to expose them to a variety of experiences, not have them be raised in a bubble where everything is sanitized and everything is, you know, and we just are people, our own people that we just see all the time. Mm-hmm. And to kind of be others oriented as far as there's people be, beyond our borders, um, outside our community or even within our community who live, you know, differently than us, uh, maybe even speak a different language or have different, uh, in a different class than us or that have just different experiences than us. How can we get to have our children to be exposed to people who are different? Being different helps us to be open. Yeah, absolutely. And we need to have our children be open, not closed to the experiences of others. And I guess part of that is just you've got to be willing to get out of your bubble, Mm -hmm. right? Because they're in your bubble. Yeah, and you know kids who are really reluctant to talk to a stranger or ask questions because they've not had the confidence to reach out and and to connect with someone. And you can't be compassionate unless you can connect with people, especially people who are maybe different than you and who are having different experiences than you and maybe feel uncomfortable with. Like if you had somebody who you knew were struggling with, maybe they were losing losing their, their job, you know, how do I talk to that person? What do I say? Or maybe they're having a life-threatening illness. How do I, I need to be able to, out of my comfort zone, be able to talk to someone who's having a different experience. And so have your children be able to even on the subway, approach a stranger and ask for directions with your guidance. Yeah. But, you know, be able to talk to people who are different, um, see the needs of others in our community. You know, even like traveling, you know, taking little short trips around, you know, the state or outside your state or even out of the country and it, attend community events. I just went to the uh, one down here in Pro called the Latin American Festival this last weekend. Oh, fun. You know, and it was a very different cultural event, yeah. but different things um, that you would normally see. Have you ever been to the Greek Festival in Salt Lake City? I haven't. And there's the Swiss Days up I in know. Midway. I and... want to take my kids to the Greek Festival. Uh-huh. And then all they thought about is, is there food? <laughs> Yeah, but, but even there's food's a music, part of it. Right, yeah, totally. exactly. There's a lot, you know, and I've even, we've had, we've hosted international students in our home. Um, that's another way that we've really been able to see the experiences of others. And then as you um, perhaps 
go to bed each night, read a book that's, that offers experiences from characters in that book that would be very different from mm. your child so that they see the lives of others and how they're feeling and thinking and then talk about them. How do you think that person's feeling as they go through that thing? How did it make you feel to hear about that? What would you do if you could help that person? Yeah. How have they inspired you? Talk about and process their feelings. Because just by asking those questions and letting them think about it there and watch the videos of the things that they're looking at. I mean, people are going to, we have the ability to actually mirror what they're feeling. We go into spaces in our brain where, so if someone's suffering, we go into a suffering area of our brain. We empathize, but it's almost like you need to you need to make that intentional. You need to dial into it. Yeah. And so dial in by offering these experiences that are kind of like third hand, but through osmosis, we're going to absorb it, then, but then help them process it. Yeah. Number two is a, um, a technique of what I teach in my classes called induction, which is you make your child aware of the consequences of their choices. How will what I do affect others? Hmm. And that will teach compassion as, as well. We often will say things like, um, you better invite Sarah to your birthday party or she'll feel left out. I'm telling her what she sh- is going to happen, but rather perhaps help help or be self-reflective. So something like this, how would, how do you think it will feel um, if Sarah isn't invited to your birthday party? How do you think she's going to feel? How would you feel if you were not invited to? So kind of the what ifs kind of thing and help them to process, you know, what if you were not invited to someone else's party? How would you feel being left out? So you're inducing mm-hmm. the, the compassion how do you think, by yeah, just asking. Exactly. And help them rather than telling them this is going to happen process it. Or you could say the if then I call it the if then what then things. What will happen when you practice the piano and then you play for all those people at the performance? What do you think those people are going to be feeling? If you practice then how will they feel after they see the the beautiful music you're going to produce? Or if you share your markers then I think Bobby's going to probably want to share his with you. What do you think? Interesting. Um, so the if, when, you know, or what do you think, what, what did grandma's face look like when you gave her those flowers? So these are inductive properties huh. where you're asking these questions open-ended um, and help them to process the consequences of their actions even ahead of time. If you do this, then what will happen? Or how would you feel if you were in their shoes kind of thing? So they can see kind of a beginning, a middle, and an end. Mm-hmm. And what do you think? Yeah, those, those types of thought-provoking questions. So those are inductive pro- properties. Um, number three is to involve them in humanitarian and service opportunities. So as often as you can, even small – I start small. It, in our own family, we draw names to be like little pixies for each other. Mm-hmm. Do little kind acts of service and at the end of the week reveal who did what, to, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, uh, It's really nice around Christmas time to do stuff like that. But all year long, you can do stuff like that. Right. Let them in. Mm-hmm. Let, them, let them try stuff. Yeah. Do little things so they can practice on people they feel safe with when they're really young. And then as you kind of – a little older, you can do bigger, you know, acts of service. Um, you know, where you do family service for people in your community, in your neighborhood. Do it anonymously. It's more fun. Kids love anonymous. You, you know, ring and run type thing, or involve them with clubs or other groups who are doing service. If you join yourself with other people, it makes the energy higher, makes it more fun for kids. So join with other people. Um, even send your kids outside. I've sent my kids outside the U.S. to do humanitarian and be part of service organizations. Right, right. It has changed their life. You know how that. Oh is. yeah. Then oh, they yeah. Come right back, like I. I have seen the world, and I right. know what it's like on the other side. And right? it's a, yeah, and they're a little slower to ask for the new phone or the new. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's they've been impacted by it. Julie, let's take a break and come back. Um, I know uh, when we come back, you've got a, just a really interesting audio clip mm-hmm. to share with us about about really charity yeah. in a way and how to how to 
get your children a little bit more bought into it. Sometimes it's just holding up a light to it. We'll continue this journey with Julie Nelson, How to Raise a Compassionate Child. You're listening to BYU Radio. We are speaking with Julie K. Nelson, the bomb mom, we call her, from the website aspoonfulofparenting.com. You're going to want to check it out. Uh, She's one of our great contributors, and today she's teaching us how to raise a a compassionate child. So far, she's taught us you need to expose your kids to a variety of experiences. You need to kind of give them questions that induce the, the opportunity for them to think about another person. Don't just tell them what others feel. Let them, like, just lead them there with a question. Yeah, the consequences of their actions on others. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, so if you do that, how do you sense that will impact Stacy? right? And then uh, you got to involve your children in humanitarian and service opportunities. Mm-hmm. Like, even, even on the on the low level, even could, within the yeah. family. Well, mm-hmm. and he could even, yes, help teach your child, teach your little brother how to do this thing instead of the mom always teaching the child, let your children teach yeah, each other. Yeah, and be tutors for each other. You help him with his homework. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I like to do service hours for getting privileges around the house. I like, like that. For, for technology or whatever, service hours. And another thing that p- parents do that's really effective is they have a check-in time each day or at nighttime, like maybe dinner time, where they tuck them into bed, and they have this ritual, and that is what was one kind thing you did for someone today? Yeah. And how did that? And how did that make them and feel? How did that make you feel when you did that? Especially that second question: yeah. How did you feel in the moment? And those are the stirrings of compassion that you're helping to recognize and shine a light on. So if you if they know that you're going to be asked that each day, then they're going to be thinking throughout the day: What can I do? Because mm. mom's going to be asking me. And then they start naturally just start doing it without even without a thought. Right. We have an audio clip. Uh, talk about the audio clip. It's a little girl. She's adorable. She's I think she's five and a half years old. Her name's Tempe. For short, or Temperance Patterson uh, Pattinson, and she's um, from Great Britain, and she's um, did a triathlon triathlon to help support the Help for Heroes charity that's become this internet sensation. Um, she has this heartwarming conversation between her and this Iraq uh, veteran. His name's Cy Brown. She's five years old. Yeah, and she's done a tri- triathlon to help money um, to raise awareness and and to pay for these veterans who. Are, and he was shot and blinded. He sustained this energy, injury, and this is adorable in a sn- Sniper, Iraqi sniper in 2006. This is an adorable conversation. Jeff, will you play it for us? Can you tell me why you swim 100 meters and why you did a triathlon? Because this, even though I didn't know any of the soldiers, I just thought that they have did something for us. I thought I could give a present back to them. Right. By raising them money. I'm quite proud of the soldiers. Oh, well, I tell you now, I'm telling you now that the soldiers are also very proud of you because I'm 38 and a half and I can't do a triathlon. I'm, and I am also scared to go on my bike. So that was quite a challenge for me. To get on your bike? Yeah, because I'm afraid to ride it. Did you have stabilizers? <laughs> yeah, because I haven't learned how to do it with only two wheels yet. You like to challenge yourself, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> Because the soldiers challenge themselves. Yes, right, they do. And, um, and and you didn't die when you got shot in the eye. I did get shot in the... I got shot in the face, actually, not quite the eye, but it was close enough. 
and um, yeah. yeah, I didn't die, but I, I was lucky, and I got home, and um, and then I had to rebuild my life, and it's because of the challenges that you do, and the money you raise, and the support you get that people like me can get better. So that's why people like you are our heroes. And and people like you are mine. That's cool. Not the sweetest. That is so sweet. Get out sweet. the tissues. Yeah. And, I mean, that's just a little child, a five-year-old, I guess, being slowly introduced into the world events. Yeah. And you wonder, how was she aware of these Iraqi soldiers? How did she know that there was ones who needed some fundraising? And how did she look within herself to say, how can I do something at five years old that would be a little bit scary? She can't even ride a bike. I know. And she's doing a travel. It's amazing. It's beautiful. I know. And, but that is seems like the spirit, right? That is... It might even be more natural to a five-year-old, and we kind of harden ourselves. Perhaps, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So my last point is just this, what Tempe did, and that is I I hope that her parents did something like this. I'm assuming they did to help her be aware of of news events and what's going on in her world. And I'm sure to to know about the Iraqi soldiers and the veterans and and what she could do helped her to say, what can I do? And so she did this triathlon. So the number four point is to discuss community and world events in these natural conversations with your children. Hey, did you know that there's these guys and, you know, talk about what's going on with Houston and there's these veterans of war and, and who are in need of our help and, and that kind of stuff. Now, not to overwhelm our children yeah. because they can also be alarmed yeah. and we don't want to alarm or scare them. So there's a way to do it where your tone will kind of guide the emotional regulation. So if your um, your tone is one of positivity and, and compassion, but yeah, what can we do? This would be something that would be very, very helpful in helping our children to know how to respond to alarming, you know, uh, world events, but not with alarm or where they feel uh, that they're out, it's out of control. Fred Rogers, I, I really love him. I Mr. love Rogers, Fred. He said this really great quote. He said, when I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. So in the midst of Houston and other things, yeah, that's a little alarmy, but with children say, let's look for the helpers who are doing wonderful things and focus on those stories and who's doing things that impact for good. Mm. And then maybe what are some things we can impact for good? Then that helps children to see I, it's not out of control. I can control um, at least my part of the world and my, my response to it. Right. And I, I guess, too, part of that is so instead of these children just having this horrible story or disaster they're actually learning to to do something in their circle of influence. Yeah, empowers empowers them rather than feeling helpless. And it could be anything like, yeah, let's get your money and go send them a check, or yeah. let's go send them, let's go make them something and mail it in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or even um, those who are really just even praying for those, you still feel empowered, like I'm doing something, but also mobilizing yourself and others to do, yeah, 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 put together some some humanitarian kits and things like that. Also, really helps kids to feel like we are doing good in this world. Yeah, you don't want to. I mean, it's it's easy to to think the kids are should just stay out of all of this, but they're not. I mean, they go to school and they hear about mm-hmm. Harvey. They hear about all these disasters. So you may as well bring them into the circle. Yeah, and they're going to be worried about, is it going to happen to me next? Um, do, kids with anxieties and things do... Do entertain those ideas, and so by by saying what can we do and what's in our within our power helps them to say I have a little more control than I thought I was able to do right. to push back these things and to not worry about them so much because so cool. the human the uh, human compassion is stronger than any disaster. Yeah, and thank heavens, right? Right, right. And I guess the kids are going to watch your uh, your 
your service, your charity, and your compassion. Um, I, I worry sometimes in our environment where we we can read a Facebook page, and I really feel bad for those people, so I put a sad face, and then I think I've done something. Uh, but you're saying we probably need to teach our kids there's more than just a sad social media Absolutely. Face. Absolutely. Yeah. We can step up and actually make a difference. Mm-hmm. Powerful stuff. Uh, Julie Nelson's her name. A spoonful of parenting.com is her game. You're not going to want to you're not going to want to miss her site. You go to her site, you'll learn all about her books. She's got a plumbing book. What's the name of the plunger book? Uh, keep it real and grab a plunger. 20, right. 25 tips for surviving parenthood. It's a good book. It's a great book. And it's not, it's even, it's even more than just plumbing advice. <laughs> it's how to get your child through life. Yeah. Really. And survive parenting. And survive parenting. Jeff needed this book uh, for his little Bryce Canyon, ex, ex, you know, expedition. We'll get it. We'll get it for you next time, Jeffrey. We'll continue the journey, folks. Up next, our good brethren from BYU Sports Nation. We'll find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Yes, friends, it is that time when we get to turn it over to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation, Spencer and Jerem, and we're going to find out uh, right now what's coming up on their show in just 13 short minutes. Hello, gentlemen. We'll be fine. Are you there, gentlemen? I can hear your hello. And we'll have. Hello. Oh, I hear you. Can you guys hear us? I'm trying to talk. I can hear you now. One more time, Spencer and Jerem. I'm, I'm at. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. Can, Hi. Can, can, you, can you hear me now? Yeah. We can hear you now. How yeah. are you? Uh-huh. We heard oh. you guys uh, discussing Harvey and the uh, the great aftermath of the hurricane. We were not discussing that. <laughs> we tricked you. How are you guys? Good. How are you? Hey, speaking of Harvey, um, what do you think uh, – what did we learn? What did BYU learn from LSU? Uh, we learned that LSU is a really stinking good football they team. They are good. Yeah. Yeah. And we also learned that uh, BYU won't play a worse offensive game all season. Really? Really? Or maybe ever again. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Ser- seriously. Like, it was... That was, that, that was bad. It was brutal. Yeah. Brutal is good. Didn't word. cross the 50. That's uh, really hard. How many total yards games. offense? 97. 97. Yeah. What, what, yeah. Wow. That's got to be really frustrating. I mean, I'm a fan, and I love the game and the sport, but you two... You know, you're students. You are professors, should well, we say. talking with Elisa Tuiaki and Ty Detmer yesterday, it helped kind of bring the reality into the situation, you know, to get their perspective. Like, look, they are really, really They're really good. good. And Elisa Tuiaki essentially said, they're better than I thought they would be. I thought they'd be really good, and they exceeded my expectations. Wow. There, and is it, I guess as, as I look at it, did they just then? Because it could have been seventy-seven to zero. Well, the defense I thought really did a nice job of kind of digging in and fighting hard, and you know, the, I thought the effort for the most part was there from the defense. Um, I just think LSU is a very well coached, very well disciplined, extremely physical, fast, elite level college football program. Like they, they are really good. They were better than I thought they would be. Yeah, yeah. And and the questions less about LSU this week and more about BYU and Kalani Satake has talked about. Hey, the offense has got to be better. Yeah, he yeah. pushed so on today, that. Today we will discuss 
the offensive issue not named Tanner Mangum passing the ball or whatever. You know, that's he kind of gets the first blame, first credit. We think we think elsewhere needs improvement, and we will discuss. Hmm. As you should. Uh-huh. As you should. We're going to have John Beck on the show as well. Hero of the 2006 Beck to Harleen. Yes. Finish as well. Uh, it, it's a compelling show. What, what BYU uh, minor leaguer got suddenly mm-hmm. waved from his team, but then called un- up to the bigs? Signed by, by another team and then called up. Un- I know. That's awesome. cool. Between the lines, it's the streets. We also have a Lego special. <gasps> BYU Sports Nation Spectacular. No, but Only it, at Gold Yeller. Hold on. Have we talked about this? That you guys are that you guys are highlighted in? Well, today, the cold open or tease at the top of the show, basically the first like 15, 20 seconds. Yes. We're Legofied. <gasps> Legofied. Yes. So check it out. Yeah. It's, <laughs> that's coming up today. You know, they have antibiotics for that. Oh, do they? Yeah, for legification. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I want to get rid of that. Mm-hmm. Some don't. It's that it's that hardened calcium on top that's anyway. It's a good life. Hey, uh, what about uh, – I don't know if you guys mentioned it because I was vacationing yesterday. But um, uh, Oh, well, you were? Yeah, we're sorry. Working. I know. You guys – I know. Okay. You All guys, right. you know, you, you guys got the pretty face, so you get to work, you get to work on Monday. Worked, but it was – especially after that game. It was a big day. <laughs> um the the punt was that just a was that just a blown uh, punt? Johnny has the nope. option if he feels so inclined to make a play like that. Okay, which maybe he won't anymore. And I think yeah, I think that that option's probably going to be taken. Away. Okay, I was just thinking maybe I missed something, but uh, yeah, a lot was missed <laughs> Saturday. Okay, by the way, can you imagine anything more terrifying than thinking, hey, maybe I had to run this, and then just seeing your light just turn to darkness. In the end it doesn't matter because whether you lose 2 to nothing or 27 yeah. to nothing, 20 to nothing, don't matter. You don't want it. The to offense s- was so bad, BYU was going to lose that game anyway. Yeah. No matter what the defense really did. Let's say the defense created four turnovers, got a bunch of stops. Guess oh, what? No. Yeah. Guess what? A 2 point a, a safety would have won that game for LSU. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I don't mind the aggressive mindset. I just thought that it happened at the wrong time and place in the game. Yeah, yeah. and typically a uh, a good choice at the wrong time and wrong place isn't a good choice. Correct. There you go. <laughs> you know, if he always on the fifty yard line, right? Zero zero in the and first it, or quarter, it's, or even if it's even if it's you know fourteen to nothing early in the third quarter, it's like, different. Trying to, yeah. but down twenty zip on your own eleven yard line in the fourth <sighs> quarter. Oh. Yeah. 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 Well, um, may the force be with you. Thank you. Continue, continue your journey because we need you. Just, just keep bringing us light. Spencer and Jerem, BYU Sports Nation, they are up in just six and a half minutes from right now, folks. You will not want to miss it. Man, so much, uh, so much other news we can cover. Jeff, let's quickly get to one of our empty news stories. The empty news team, first on the scene. Fifth on Facts. Have you ever worried that you're too good-looking for your job? Every day. Mm. Every day. Yeah. I worry about that. Do you ever fear for your job because of it? Because of my good looks? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> totally. So uh, there's this woman in Manhattan, or there was a Manhattan Appeals panel uh, that made a first-of-its-kind decision. What? 
They overturned a lower court ruling that said you can't be fired because of your gender, but you could get the boot for being too cute. So they they uh, this mm. panel decided mm, that that's not going to fly. Something doesn't fly. Then. So this decision involved a 2013 lawsuit filed by a blonde massage therapist named Delek Edwards against her former boss, Wall Street chiropractic Charles Nikolai, and his wife, Stephanie Adams. Delek, 33, said she was axed after Nikolai admitted to his 46-year-old wife that she might become jealous of his uh, bubbly staffer because she was too cute. (laughs) So last year, Manhattan Judge Shlomo... That's right, Shlomo Hagler... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> had ruled against Delek, saying yeah. her cuteness quotient couldn't be cited as the basis for a discrimination claim. But the appeals panel disagreed. Delek was fired for no reason other than Adam's belief that Nikolai was attracted to her, lead judge David Friedman wrote. He mm. was joined by judges Carla Moskowitz and Judge Gish and Marcy Kahn. This states a cause of action for gender discrimination under New York State human rights law. Holy cow. So you can be too cute for your job. I knew it. I knew it. I'm worried. I don't know what to do because I don't know how to make this, pointing to my face, as less cute. I can't do it. I mean, many a time... People look at me and they're like, you're so darling. You're so adorable. Yeah. No. No. My mom said it last night on the phone. Matt, you're darling. A lot of people say I have a face for radio, but some say, no, I have a really cute face for radio. Anyway. Wake up, Jeff. Jeff, let's wrap this up then. You're not going to listen to me. Jeff's just celebrating Be Late for Something Day. And what he's late for is our hero story. As you know, we always like to wrap up the show with a hero story. Today's uh, hero is Danielle Palmer of Owensville, Missouri, who has donated 1,000 ounces of her own breast milk for Harvey victims. Palmer, a mother of three, watched as Hurricane Harvey flooded Houston, uh, Texas, last week and wanted to do something to help. She was then approached by an organizer from a nonprofit, Guiding Star Missouri, who was looking for donations of extra breast milk for Harvey victims in need. Palmer, whose youngest, Truett, has a congenital heart defect that prevents him from taking her milk, loaded up hundreds of bottles exceeding 1,000 ounces of breast milk. She, by the way, 1,000 ounces of breast milk is like 346 feedings. That is amazing. We gave the 1,040 ounces and we figured uh, that up. You know, that's, that's a lot of love. And with breastfeeding, stress plays a big role in our supply. And as people become more stressed, their supply drops. So a lot of mothers in uh, the hurricane area obviously stressed and need to have something to feed their children. So she's the hero of the day. Danielle Palmer of Owensville, Missouri. We are, uh, we're grateful for you and your willingness to just reach out and to, to give a helping hand. That's the show, my friends. Again, we can't do it without you. We're here Monday through Friday, 9 to noon Eastern time. And uh, we really have a goal of helping you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier life. Also to laugh, if you can, as we go through it. Uh, remember, we're in this together. And uh, tomorrow is another day. We'll talk again tomorrow. BYU Sports Nation, my friends, it's up next.